This is the Console Crusade podcast. Hello and welcome. I am your host today, Nick Durheim, and joining me as always, Chris Gilly4. Hey, how you doing, bud? I am excited to be here to uh, catch up and to talk about probably my two greatest hyperfixations slash media obsessions, both getting new releases in the span of several weeks of one another. It's been uh, quite a time for me to be alive. Yeah, how hyper-specific are these two things for you? That's really hilarious, actually. (laughs) Astonishingly specific. Like, I was joking about it looking ahead to this month after Dune got pushed, 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 and I I went, oh my god, in the span of three weeks, I'm getting a new Metroid game, and I'm getting a Dune film that's hopefully not going to suck, and we'll talk about it. Yeah, from a competent director. Who knew that could be possible? Uh, You know... (laughs) I know you're a Lynch fan, but still... (laughs) I mean, it's not, it's not good. The 1984 was not good. I mean, there's a reason why he calls it his one mistake, but he learned a lot from it and I'm happy to talk about that anytime. I mean, I kind of, I kind of miss the, the Minecraft looking, uh, shield effects, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, obviously we're missing our good pal EJ Olson because he decided that he wants to be really slow and just really take his time enjoying Metroid and not because he's probably putting too much on his plate and he's probably going to listen to this and be chuckling, but. It is a little bit weird recording without him because obviously him and I started this thing like five years ago and this is my first time recording without him. So I'm a little bit nervy. EJ's, you know, done me dirty and done a couple podcasts without me on them. And <laughs> I don't think he even invited me to those. <laughs> wow. Yeah, this is. Uh, I don't even know if you've listened back to those. Th- I have not. This is an historic evening then. Um, the first without old Beard Squatch himself. Uh just the other beard squatch, yours truly. Yeah, yeah. I actually keep mine trimmed up though. I haven't, I haven't let the pandemic really take me emotionally and physically like that. I did when I was uh, up in Alaska for the summer. I was like, I want to go full, full mountain man, and I did, and I came back and that then tracks. sat that for a little bit, and then shaved it. I looked back at some Instagram pictures the other day and was like, what the fuck was I thinking? Like, I'm never letting it get this long again. Yeah, that's always fun. It's always good to to have that moment where you just really let it go and just let it let let yourself see what that reality can bring for you yes and what that reality brought for me was regret uh but i digress what are we what are we talking about keep your neck warm though well so the last time we recorded i looked and we were just talking about i think it was the pokemon direct and uh given some impressions on some uh games that we were playing more recent games like i talked about monster hunter stories and then you talked about hollow knight so you and i talked about hollow knight a lot on that episode and then before that was e3 because we were doing this thing barely at all it's been two months since we recorded last so i wanted to catch up and talk to you about some of the games that i've been playing i'd like to talk to you about some of the games that you've been playing i know that animal crossing thing just dropped recently but i don't know if there's anything else that you've played in the last couple months that sort of uh you wanted to chat about like after hollow Knight, before dread if there was anything that occupied your time most definitely um I did a, a little bit of a couple of different things, but I think largely I was kind of saving my mental pennies for the Dread release. Um, I know for myself that I can get into cycles where I'll get really hyperfixated on gaming and then I'll get really hyperfixated on working or I'll get really hyperfixated on reading and it kind of comes and goes in waves. And so, I went, okay, I don't want to peak sure. before Dread comes out, but I did a little bit more of uh, Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze. Uh, which I'm still really enjoying. I uh, have yet to complete, but I think that's because, speaking of fixations, I can't let myself proceed without getting all the collectibles in a given level, and that really slows it down. It's hard to build momentum that way. Uh, 
but I did a little bit of that. I yeah, talk about a game where it's hard to build momentum. <laughs> yeah, uh, your your platforming physics joke is uh, uh, is right at home here with me. Uh, it did take me a little bit of time to get <laughs> used you. to that. Uh, oh no, I was I'm picking up what you put down. I'm smelling what you let go of. It was uh, it was a good joke. Uh, little bits of like I downloaded the Sword and Shield expansion pass just because I'm really itching for. I was really itching for Pokemon, but I didn't wanna. I didn't want to buy the Diamond Pearl remakes. I might still buy the Diamond Pearl remakes, but uh, th- that's been scratching that itch. Um, mostly, though. I heard that second one, the uh, the uh, was Crown Tundra, I think, was it, was it the Crown Tundra second or the uh, Island of Armor? It was this, whatever one. The second one I I heard was really good, actually. Oh, that's very heartening. I, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying Isle of Armor so far. I'm still pretty early. Okay, so it must be Crown Tundra the second. So, yeah, so... People really like the second one. Um, I had no interest in playing Sword or Shield. Uh, Lindsay bought one of them. I can't remember which one. So I'm, if I ever have the urge for more Pokemon, I can go ahead and do that. But definitely Diamond Pearl. Uh, I pre-ordered because the Pokemon store gave you like a cool keychain if you did that. So I was like, well, fuck it. I'm, I feel like I'm going to be playing Pokemon in November. <laughs> That's going to be my chill out sort of pre-holiday game. Um, yeah, it sounds pretty good that you've sort of been sort of poking along at some other things shipping at the backlog that's definitely what i've been doing with my last few months is just playing games that i'd bought and hadn't gotten around to because you know it's hard to prioritize and get things lined up in a way that makes sense games come out in weird times and you like you said you might not necessarily be like in the mood for, to deep dive into a game but when it hits it really hits and it was hitting real hard before metroid i was just like i've got all these games i've got I even put myself on like time limits where it's like, I've got to finish this game before this day because then I can play this game. And I think that was really helpful. So jumping back a few months before, actually, I'm not even sure when this is in relation to when we talked about uh, Monster Hunter stories, the sort of Pokemon like Monster Hunter. I played, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's a game that came out on 360. It's called Dragon's Dogma. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I heard a, of it. Uh, a remaster like new generation port of it and then they eventually brought it over to switch and people talked it up a bunch it was sort of spoken of in similar tunes to people talking about dark souls being like a cult classic maybe less loved than dark souls and going back to it and like playing it i can see why because it has a lot of cool potential it's got really sort of fun combat for like a uh open world sort of skyrimy kind of built game but with a more Japanese twist of like the the, the animations are actually really good and these uh, creature designs are very interesting. It did feel like half a game in some respects. Like as I was playing it, the the enemy variety is pretty lacking, and I sort of got myself into a rhythm with the the classes because it seems like a game that they just kept throwing systems at, and mm. it became like bloated. So, I mean, it's not even worth explaining everything. There's three classes. And then you can like multi-class and then as you class, it's sort of like a job system in Final Fantasy where as you unlock these powers and in these classes, you can sort of like spec them onto the character. But there's there's some that you can only do while you're in that character class. And then it's just this whole thing. And the way you pick up things and then you get over encumbered and you can't run as fast and your stamina drains and the stamina gauge is, is tied to your special abilities that you equip to, you know, it's just a whole bunch of shit. But it has like some cool things that people really like about it, like the way you fight enemies is that occasionally you'll fight these big monsters because there's these big monsters and you're climbing on them. You're actually fighting them like shadow of the Colossus style. So that really sort of captured the imagination of people, but it turned out to, for me personally, it was just like, okay, so I can climb this guy 
and then I'm just mashing a button to hit it. And that's not very interesting. So it's it's a sort of game that has a lot of potential for a sequel. And I think it's even rumored that there will be a sequel. The The guy who just uh, did The Devil May Cry 5, which people really liked, that was like a return to form for that series. He was responsible for Dragon's Dogma. So people are speculating, oh, now that he did Devil May Cry 5, he'll go back to Dragon's Dogma and do a sequel. And if they do that, I think it has a really cool sort of base to build up and improve its systems because a lot of it does remind me of how breath of the wild sort of changed the the game for open world games but this was just they just threw too much crap at it and the, the stuff that's good i want them to hone and stretch out on that and ignore they don't really need to be well i don't know because the running around is cool and like the way there's like a certain class that gives you a double jump and that's awesome and there's like a sort of parkour kind of element but not as not as defined as like the early Assassin's Creed games, but definitely inspired by it. So I don't know. I have a lot of mixed feelings about that game. I had a good time. Uh, I finished it. It was like not very good story-wise. The voice acting was all right. It's kind of that weird 2010-ish Japanese uh, game developer trying to get a Western audience. This is like Lost Planet era. You know, that's like a weird time for video games coming from the from the East. But Dragon's Dogma, it's a good game. You should check it out if you have the opportunity. I've seen it on sale really cheap. I think I got it for like 25 bucks, and I think it's worth it at that price. Yeah, it's really funny. Um, after that, oh, no, feel free. I've been just like rambling. <laughs> no, it's, first of all, that sounds super interesting, and I should I should pick up the Switch port um, to, to throw into my backlog that'll never see the light of day. Uh, yes. I, it, it's funny that like mid 2010s or two, like 2010 voice acting, uh, like localized from the East thing, just kind of, I did the Squid Game thing. I watched Squid Game finally, like after I feel like every other human on earth that I know. And th- there's these American speaking, English speaking characters, American English speaking characters that are introduced later in the show that apparently like some people had uh, had a, a really hard time believing. And I, I was like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why I don't get it. Like, I, I, I totally buy this. Like, it makes perfect sense to me. And then I realized about like the second or third episode uh, with these characters that it sounds like that weird stilted localized english from a like mid 2000s or or 2010s era uh jrpg like <laughs> it sounds exactly like right. that i'm so used to that at this point that i just i just didn't think anything of it but i see how like a lay person who doesn't play a lot of like weird eastern rpgs would would uh would go these they don't sound like people they don't sound like humans right and for to your point with like a lot of jrpgs which i will speak of a couple more later but this doesn't have that kind of JRPG problem where it's obviously paced for a, a Japanese dialect and the the way that things are not enunciated but emphasized is uh, sort of in that Japanese way because obviously people in different languages talk to each other, not in different words, but also in different like phrasings and the way that you wait for someone to speak, uh, even something in Japanese where people... If they're listening, you'll just be making a bunch of noise to to tell the person that is talking to you that you're listening. Like that's not a very Western thing. So when things get translated over, you get all these like weird uh, uh, and it's just like it's weird for an American audience, a Western audience to get that. But this is not that. This is truly, if you looked at it, you'd be like, okay, this is a Skyrim ripoff. It is a Western medieval dark fantasy setting with like the old English sort of writing. You're the beginning of a game has this giant dragon attack your village and he takes your heart out with his like a little claw and then you become the you basically are the dragonborn. It's a dragon, you're a dragon, but you got the dragon heart and whatever. You're the dark arisen, you are the arisen one, whatever. And so it's just this dumb story, which is worthless. But 
it doesn't have that sort of bad voice acting. It just has that sort of, uh, I don't know. It's just voice acting in games is generally like pretty poor. And I wouldn't say that this is like noticeably poor. It's just, I had said it because it is poor, you know, it's not exceptional in that way. However, if you do want to talk about JRPGs and voice acting that is done by, uh, character voice actors that do voices in anime and clearly have like a typecast and the JRPG is based on like anime tropes to some extent, then we should talk about Ease 9, which I also played right after Dragon's Dogma. And are you familiar with the Ease series? Is this the ninth game in this series? There's been more than that because there's been like compilations and spinoffs like The Legend of Heroes is a, well, I guess Legend of Heroes isn't a spinoff, but it's made by the same company. This is a Nihon Falcom joint. And it the is. series started in 1987, 86. Oh, wow. On like uh, MSX, maybe. I don't know. It's like Japanese computers. Uh, there was eventually like a Famicom version. You know, it's that kind of game. But so in contrast to the games like Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy, this has more of an action stint to it. Not nearly as much as a Legend of Zelda or like a Xanadu, which they also made. This is more like, hey, let's take an RPG and boil it down to its base principles. So the original games were a tile-based RPG, but instead of going into random encounters, you would see enemies on the field and you would walk into them to do damage and you'd walk into their sides and their back to attack them. And if you hit them from their front, then you would take damage. So it was just like mashing toys together. And as the games have progressed, they've added more action uh, elements and stuff. So clearly this is a a game that was made and it came out in Japan last year and it was uh, released in the West this year. They've been actually shortening the time between Western release and original release by quite a lot. It's still a lot longer than like, you know, the games with like a lot of budget, like the persona games and you know, the, the triple a tier JRPGs, your final fantasies and such. But this is an interesting sort of game. It gives me very strong, like PS2, uh, 360, like mid two thousands kind of vibe as far as, this is not a beautiful game. This is a game that has art direction that is okay, and the controls are kind of clunky. The The camera is not great, but where it lacks in sort of like the visual and uh, physical polish, it really makes up for, I mean, the music in this game is S tier. This is like some of the best video game music you can ever hear. <laughs> it's so freaking good. Oh, wow. Uh, it's really funny though. <laughs> because so okay the original game i believe was composed by uh oh gosh what's the guy that did like uh uh streets of rage and like i'm sorry anyway it's it's got a banging ass soundtrack from well-known composers that moved on to do other games it's sort of like if uh shimamura did an rpg in like the 80s and then the music was sort of like that's where it started and then it's just like kept going and it's just cruised and just been good the entire time but the music and just like the heart and the vibes of this game are just really, really great. It never sort of uh, feels overbearing in its mechanics and the grind is just so good. It's got a decent level of grind where if you really want to, you can like hammer out these, these, these moves and really like level them up and get them, get everybody singing, everything sitting pretty. And that's one of my favorite things about RPGs is actually like doing the grind and as I'm getting older, you know, you don't want it to feel tedious. You don't want to feel like you're just like wasting time just to just to surpass your next goal. Whereas this game, I never felt like I had to grind to like beat a boss. 
It was never like a difficulty thing. It was more just like as you level up your skills, they cost less to use. And then you're like, oh, man, I can just hammer this out five times instead of four times. That's it's awesome. The way that it's, it's really it's like that's my favorite kind of thing in these kinds of games. Uh, it's an action RPG. So you're running around and you're slashing. You've got like, you know, dedicated attack button. And then you can like hold like a trigger or something. And then your face buttons turn into your special moves and you can swap those out as you unlock other ones. So you can sort of tailor it to, okay, so I'm going to be fighting these sky enemies. So I've got this cool uppercut move that you can do, or, you know, I've got, I'm going to be fighting a bunch of small enemies. So I want to keep a a wide AOE sort of swing. And it's just like really engaging the combat. And like I said, it's, it's, you know, it's meters, it's all this kind of crap. And then it's got a a dodge system and a, like a parry system. So then as you do, like you can do like a perfect dodge and then you can attack and it fills up your meter faster or you can do a perfect parry and then your damage deals, you deal more damage and that kind of thing. So it's just like a really nice uh, sort of loop of you interacting with the the enemies. And it's just, I don't know. I played ease eight when that came out on switch in I want to say 2018. And that was my first time playing anything in the series and was just really blown away with how like cozy it was and how, not like low budget and cheap, but just how like quaint it sort of felt. Mm. And as I like looked looked up some of the voice actors, I'm like, oh, that's the guy who did like like your your main companion is this guy named Dogie, and he's like not someone who fights with you. He's just at the home base, and as you are like saving people on side quests, they go back to the home base, and you get these sort of like visual novel esque sort of conversations. And you're like just learning about these people and like the where they fit into the story. And Dogie's always there. He's your homie. And he's voiced by the guy who did, who was the voice of, uh, did you ever watch Kill a Kill? Oh, I didn't. That one was, uh, nope. Okay. Well, anyway, it's just like a guy who's sort of like, he's sort of like dollar store Chris Cybot, you know, like he's <laughs> like, the, he's the big guy. He's got the deep voice. So that's sort of like, it's just like these character actors that you're like, oh, I, I don't, you might not even know the voice, but you know the you know what they should be voicing, you know? Right. And that's just kind of a cozy thing. And the way that people talk to each other, it's like. I don't know. It's like I said, it's not cheap feeling, but it's just like lower sort of echelon. It's not trying too hard. It's, it knows exactly what it is. And I can super respect that because I know exactly what it is. And then through that exchange of ideas and expectations, I can just have a good ass time for 30 to 40 hours. So I heartily recommend Ease 9 if you are if you're uh, interested in a sort of action RPG button mashy to an extent like it's. It sort of reminds me, I don't know if you uh, tried playing Hyrule Warriors this last year or oh, if yeah. you've played a, a Dynasty Warriors game, but it kind of reminds me of that. It's not as bombastic. You're not shooting, you know, hordes of enemies into the sky. It runs just about as badly as that game, which is a bit of a bummer. <laughs> but like, if you want to, you can play this on other platforms, but I play it on Switch because I don't really care. This is the kind of game that it's not affecting me negatively that it's like chugging along. It, Hyrule Warriors didn't even really do that, but. Whereas Hyrule Warriors, like the problem I had with that that game after a while was that I didn't feel like the environments were changing. It felt like I was sort of fighting in the same place over and over. I was fighting the same enemies over and over. And with Ease, the the enemy variety was maybe a little bit better. It wasn't like super great or anything, but the environments were pretty wildly different. Like each dungeon, it was like a you know it's like a linear game. You're just like okay, this next area has this vibe. This next area has this vibe, and it it allows you to progress in that way. And it was just like every time I got to a new place and I started hearing the music going and I was like, ah, this is so fucking cool. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm in the sewers right now, but this beat is bopping and I'm just kicking these guys asses. And the thing that they added in this one that wasn't there in the prior game was having these interesting like, sort of traversal mechanics with these uh, 
characters that you're recruiting and each time you recruit a new character you get a new power and you start off and you uh are this character that's the main character in all these games he kind of looks like roy from fire emblem he's just a red-haired anime boy adult Kristen. and you get this you get shot by an anime lady with an anime gun and you get turned into a, what's called a monstrum and you can get a double jump and then you can also teleport to certain areas so you like you see something glowing and you press a button you teleport to it mm-hmm. and that sort of increases your your traversal and then you recruit someone else and you could run up walls and then you recruit someone else and you can glide like breath of the wild style or you recruit someone else and you can shrink into the ground like vivian from paper mario and like hide from enemies or like go underneath uh like little hidden passages and stuff i don't know it's just it was i just had a really good time with ease nine honestly that's hype i mean i i mean you know me i love i, I love rpgs of any any shape size color or what have you uh i and it did jog my memory that i had been putting maybe my like third concerted session into trying to keeping uh trying to get through nino kuni uh which i've i mean i i I have loved and for whatever reason it's never it's never landed at the time where it's like this is just gonna be the the game that i fixate on and take care of uh and finally get through um in spite of the fact that it's beautiful and that it has, as you so eloquently put it, a banging ass soundtrack uh, and some right. interesting like m- monster collect and evolve mechanics to like round out your party and just a very charming, a very charming story full of puns. So, so, so many uh, puns, but it just has not. <laughs> I got off the, you know, I got the boat and sailed off to the next continent and had like a, you know, those like big JRPG, you just changed environment difficulty spikes. Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And was like, <laughs> oh my God, yes, now I can grind again. I can, I can power level again because I love that stuff. Like I'm all about the grind. Right. Um, and then, uh, you know, set it down and off it went back into the backlog. Now, are you the kind of person who, if you set a game down, you have to start over or are you fairly capable of picking a game back up and sort of reacclimating with it? Obviously, it's different from game to game, but say with Nino Kuni, would you start over? Or would you pick it back up where you left off? I'm good to pick it back up. I was worried that I was going to have to start over um, when I booted my save and went, I have no idea where I'm going. I don't remember some of these <laughs> mechanics. Oh, man, I, I thought for, for a half second, I thought I was screwed. And then I, you know, w- wandered around a little bit, did some did some fighting, got used to the combat again. And then went, oh, OK, yeah, I remember what this. I remember what that is. Oh, OK, here's where I can check. Like, what are my side quests right now? Because I'm all about them side quests. Got to get the side quests done. Uh, and yeah. it got back on track and realized, oh, I'm like right about to make a big jump of location. If I could just like get through this little this little piece of plot. Um, and that was really uh yeah, that was really heartening that I I feel I feel like I can pick that up again. But sometimes it it depends on how long how long it's been set aside and what the nature of the game is. Uh, if it was like a Final Fantasy game that I'd set aside for more than a year, I think it's been since I picked it up. I would be screwed. I'd have to start it over. It's too dense. Um, but Nino Kuni's got a right, very simple. Yeah, because I don't know actually how intensive the story is in Nino Kuni. Lindsay picked it up and she was playing it for a bit, but I don't think she's going to go back to it. So that's on my backlog now. So yeah, but for like a Final Fantasy, I, I think I think you're right where you'd sort of want to keep that that pace and that uh, trickle of story and how everything like lines up. You'd want it to be like all at once, sort of a sort of a thing. Try and actually carve out a couple weeks to to get through one of those, depending on the full runtime of the game. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, Nino Kuni's a fairy tale. It's a fairy tale story, so it's a little bit easier to hold on to. And they kind of 
I don't want to say they hold your hand, but they like keep stuff pretty straightforward and recap as necessary and everything is, you know, in the compendium or whatever the hell it's called that I could go back and just like look at all these things if I don't remember what these terms mean. Uh, So maybe I'll come back to that. uh, I I don't know, in in the future, although now with more Animal Crossing content and sort of like, I don't don't know when that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's hard to sort of you got to look at the sort of the release schedule and think, okay, if I'm feeling like playing a game of this genre at this time, then I could squeeze this in in February. I, you know, I don't really see anything happening, if it, but you know, not actually because February is Elden Ring, but you know, for an example, you know, that's sort of what I'm doing with uh, SMT coming out this month, and then uh, Pokemon's right after that. I'm probably gonna just be playing animal crossing for the next week and then play pokemon then do smt after that do that like my december rpg but then i still want to go back and play i need to buy and play dragon quest 11 at some point you know it's it's just impossible jrpgs they take so much goddamn time and you don't want you don't really want to play them back to back in my experience because they bleed over too much i mean if they're mechanically different that's one thing but you sort of want to want to break things up by by how you're feeling which is why after ease nine I believe I finished that and then played Metroid, which we'll talk about in depth after this. But then I tried picking back up another game from the backlog, another game that I had started, gotten more than halfway through and then uh, dropped off was Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, which I know you picked up again earlier this year. I remember you talking about that in the group chat. And I was like, you know, I should probably go back to DKC. I was having some fun with that game. And I tell you, I played, I, I went through the world that I was playing and I finished it and then started the next one and w- just decided, you know what? I do not have fun with this game at all. This is a game that I do not feel like is mechanically engaging with me to an extent that I am enjoying falling and dying. Like it's not a hard game. It's just, I, I don't want to play it the way it wants me to play it. So then I bounced off. Interesting. I t- talk more about that. So I went through the water world which was you know it's whatever the swimming in that game is okay um it's a little bit of a bummer that you can't do like the fast swim unless you have a partner so you get punished doubly for getting hit a couple times <sighs> so that was like a little bit annoying and the whole like having to have air bubbles and stuff kind of sucked and the way that they ameliorate that uh just in general just the difficulty in general the way they try to make that easier on you is they give you the opportunity to spend your coin gathering coins and you can spend them at the funky shop to get cheats is what it felt like it's like hey we made this game too hard and it's not fun to control this big ass monkey he's got impossible to actually understand momentum and when you're rolling and doing a roll jump you're moving impossibly fast until you land and then you stop and you know so we made a bad uh controlling game but with really cool level design. So we just gave you cheats that you can use if it's too hard for you, I guess. So you can play baby mode with the funky car or whatever. <laughs> so I just never had fun. I ne- it never felt right actually playing as DK. And even in the old Donkey Kong games, I never liked to play as DK. Even though back then there wasn't like that huge of a divide playing between DK and Diddy in like the first game. And then you never play as Donkey again in those games. So it was awesome. <laughs> When you played as Kitty Kong, like the the stupid monkey, you only really played as him to throw Dixie up in the sky or whatever. Then you go back to her because she can hover. <laughs> That's so interesting. So, I don't know, just in general, I just didn't have fun playing the game. Like the the control of it just didn't feel right to me. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't know if I, I. I mean, I share your frustration about like water partner frustrations, just because some of the collectibles you have to have like a specific partner. 
which means you have to carry them through in the, the later game where I'm at through the entire level successfully in order to uh, access it, which can be really challenging. Um, yeah, it was, really, it was bad enough trying to stay alive during the octopus chase sequence. I'm sure there's a secret collectible somewhere in there that you need to have a partner around for that. But I couldn't imagine trying to do that without getting any without getting hit at all because you have so much momentum underwater and then you, the turn radius is ass and you can't actually control your... You don't know which way you're pointing until you actually start moving there. So this is trouble. I think that there's like a quiet elegance to the underwater turning personally, just that I, I, I feel like when I would get hit underwater, most of the time it's my fault where I would look at that and go, oh, I bet I can make that and should have listened to the voice that was telling me, no, you know, you can't make that like you, you, you've, you've done this enough times to know you, you can't make that. I, I don't. And maybe it's, I don't know if you'd been like grinding collectibles like I do and, and doing all the challenge levels as you went along, but I feel like doing those, you learn the way that the game wants you to play like really quickly because it is just not possible to do them without understanding the way that the game works and the way that like Donkey's momentum carries him when, when he's in motion. Cause there's one of the, one of the challenge levels, I don't remember which world it is, that it's just strings of absolutely perfectly timed enemy bounce jumps pretty much for the entire level. And then some, some little reprieves where you're swinging on ropes, but even then you'll grab the rope and the roof will start to, will start to crack. And so you have to swing off the rope pretty quickly. So it's very like fast twitchy, just trust yourself, trust your instincts kind of gaming that like excites me. Um, but starting it after having like we had just replayed like all three of the Donkey Kong Country games not that long ago, I feel like for the podcast. And so going from like I think that was last year, <laughs> time has no meaning, which right? isn't that long. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, semi recently having replayed all of those and then playing this one where, like you said, like donkey sticks, like you roll. And if you don't hold the right button, he does not have his own momentum. You have to keep telling him go to the right. And once you hit ground you're gonna stop like he he sticks um which is you know again i expected like he's his momentum is gonna carry him and i might have to like compensate backwards uh like you do in the snes days if you think you rolled too far you can just like twitch back really fast and like make the platform right. you cannot do that if you try and do that you're literally just gonna go bloop bloop and just fall right into the hole uh also yeah they they just fling lives at you like i don't think i've never bought any of as you so i've never apt. been below like after a level I'm, I'm at 99 yeah like it doesn't matter i get i get more lives than i lose but it's still not fun having the just load you know it's just like a it's not a meat boy load you're not popping back into a tight concise puzzle level you're trying to run through this gauntlet to the next checkpoint yeah and i just never it just uh was not fun for me and obviously i i know that this is a a broadly lauded game like everybody seems to love this game and i know that i'm wrong for hating it <laughs> but and not hate is a strong is a strong word i don't hate it it's just not fun yeah i mean that's fair like i i'm, I'm not gonna sit here and go like oh how dare you because it's critically acclaimed like whatever there's critically acclaimed stuff that i think is ass like and then that's purely personal preference and and i respect that of course i just thought it was interesting that you that you brought it up that you're still chipping away at it and that <laughs> I tried playing it and was just like, I think I gave it, I don't know if I played it for two nights or just one night, but I, I played it and I got through that world and was just like, I started the next world and I can't remember the, the it was the berry one, which I, I, I got past that, I think on Wii U. So like, 
this is a game that I wanted to like so much that I bought it twice and it just didn't stick with me either way, which is a bummer because I obviously love the Donkey Kong trilogy on Super Nintendo. I even like DK64. I know that's not a good game, but you like what you like. Um, after that, I uh, went through a very short Ease uh, spinoff game called Ease Origin, which uh, I don't know how I would sell this game. It's sort of hack and slash. It's a top-down 2D kind of game. It's uh, reminiscent of, say, a Zelda in that aspect. Uh, but it is just a very small sort of experience. I went through it in about 10 hours, I want to say. Uh, there's different paths depending on what character you start with. There's two characters you can choose, and then after you go through it with both those characters, you unlock a third one. Uh, I went through with just the one, uh, played the girl with the axe, who's like a hack and slash. The other option is like this dude who's like a mage with like more ranged attacks. And it's just another cozy sort of PS1 era, hyper good sprites kind of game where just like seeing it and hearing it, um, not mechanically or like the what you're doing in the game, but it gave me strong Golden Sun vibes, just like prog rock metal guitar with that sort of that midi kind of vibe it was just sort of like a cheap kind of sound to the instrumentation but like the music was just beautiful and then the way the characters are like these uh pre-rendered sprites sort of like sort of like mario rpg actually with like the eight wave facing and mm. then you're just like swinging around just beating the crap out of this shit and it's a it's a weird sort of jrpg story you're you come from this place that's like this this land this castle city that's lifted into the sky and then the demon invasion is happening on the surface and they're trying to steal this magic pearl that that beckons them or whatever that's keeping the city afloat and these two goddess angels that you're friends with but one of them came down so the other followed and you're just you're going through this tower that the demons are building to the city in the sky so it has this like sort of judeo-christian vibe to it but also high fantasy jrpg flute nonsense you talk to a tree in the very beginning of the game who's like oh i oh you can't talk to me anymore because you don't have actual magic and she's like, oh, shit, I don't have magic, but I have this axe. And then you start beating up demons and, you know, etc. It happens. That was fun. That was just like the boss battles were interesting. Short. You get every item in the game. Like all you have like five. There's five shoes, five weapons. Five, you know, it's just like you, you see the item screen and like, that's it. That's everything that you can get. Huh. And something about that was just like this a nice digestible kind of thing i I like a like a game that has a definite end it seems like a game that is built for people to do like speed runs of which for Mm. an rpg like an action rpg is very weird kind of interesting apparently it came out on pc in like 2006 does not seem like 2006 game seems like a 1996 game like a like a it seems like a saturn game you know i don't know if that (laughs) really carries anything with you but you know what i mean (laughs) i do i do and then after I got through Ease Origin, I uh, wanted to keep chipping away my backlog. I played a little bit of West of Loathing, which is an indie game spinoff of the browser RPG Kingdom of Loathing, which I don't know if you're familiar with. That is a mostly text-based with like stick figure black and white drawings. Um, that game is well known for its just really good writing and really uh, funny references. Like, for example, early on in the game, well... I don't know. There's just, there's so many things that you could talk about with uh, Kingdom of Loathing, but uh, like there's an area you go to the White Forest, and throughout the White Forest, you're just clicking. It's a browser game, so like you're you're spending uh, resources to go on adventures, and as you go on adventures, you encounter different enemies, so you can like fight a white lion, or you go to a white wedding, or you you travel through and you find yourself at White Castle, and you have to fight you know <laughs> a a unicorn that's being written by Neil Patrick Harris basically, but it isn't it written out in so many words, right? So 
Right. It's just like it's all it's all references. It's all comedic. It's a very funny uh, game. West of Loathing is a actual like wander around traveling uh, RPG sort of. It's like a small numbers game, sort of like Paper Mario, where it's like you have ten health, the opponent has five health. You do two points of damage. Do go away. Go 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 kill that enemy. Um, it wasn't really clicking for me. I might go back to it and play it again sometime. It just wasn't hitting at the right time. It's sort of like a uh, pastiche of a western where you, uh, you like you rec- you can recruit a, a companion in the opening town and like the I'm just thinking about like what's sticking out to me. There was a spittoon that I went into and I got like a gold tooth out of, which then <laughs> I could like trade to someone for something, and it was really gross. And like the character, you, you get like the inner monologue of like the character. Like I will, I will never be able to forget this. <laughs> like this is the worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> that kind of thing. I don't know. It's it was pretty funny. You got to save these horses, and then you chose one of the horses to from the horse wrangler or whatever the guy's name. The the, ho- the hostler, I think, is the. He's like, I'm a I'm a hostler. He's like, what do I, what do you do? He's like, oh, I I sell horses. <laughs> it's you know, it's dumb shit like that. <laughs> um, but really. Well, I just finished like very recently. It was Luigi's Mansion Three. Did you get a chance to play that when it came out a couple of years ago? Nope, missed it completely. I love the original one. I played a little bit of Dark Moon. Did not play the third one. So where I played the original one as well, I played a little bit of Dark Moon. Uh, Dark Moon wasn't hitting for me because it is strictly like a level and area based kind of uh, experience. It's like made for the 3DS. You're doing like, hey, go to this room and like do the thing in there and then come back and then you get like your little score screen and you go to the next thing. And this is a linear adventure. You're going up this uh, hotel and each of the levels of the hotel, I mean, it's similar in that each level is sort of like a, a has its own shtick. So like, to for example, one of the ones I did was a, like an Egyptian tomb. Like you go into like this pyramid and it's full of all these traps and you have to like watch out for arrows shooting through and you have to like step on a, a weighted switch and then you can send your guiji somewhere else but it's it's a good like uh puzzle kind of adventure uh yeah there's just nothing like it it's just you're going through these bespoke locations and it's very uh interesting how they sort of tie that into like what you're doing um maybe not perfectly all the time like for example <laughs> one of the last levels is this like dance club it's sort of like a 70s disco vibe um, but it's playing mostly just like, you know, sort of like techno four on the floor kind of thing. But I would have expected like, oh, I need to like do like a, a, a matching rhythm sort of game where like, oh, they move to the left three squares and then one to the right, you know. But it was just a normal fight for that. And some of the areas are shorter than others, which is fine. But um, I don't expect that much of it. But there was some really just like fun moments. It's a it's a it's a game built on a series of moments that happen and that's uh, a really good time. And the animation work in that game is fantastic. The music is really cool. And it was great playing that for Halloween. Like that was my Halloween game and I picked it back up and ah. was like just enjoying the spooky vibes. Put the green lights on, play some Luigi's Mansion. So I would recommend that if you can get it on sale or something. I know Black Friday is coming up so Nintendo will give their games away for fifty bucks or whatever. <laughs> a Nintendo sale, yeah, seriously. No, I should keep my eye out for my annual build the backlog day um <laughs> you know just in case that pile gets too small <laughs> uh yeah it might one day i don't know i've been i've been pretty good about i mean i do almost all my gaming on the switch at this point like i don't know the last time i bought a playstation 4 game 
I don't even own. I don't own a PS5. I don't know when I will own a PS5. So it's all like, what, what can I play on on PS4 at this point? And I, anyway, uh, I digress. Yeah, I, I, I'll pick it up. I, I, I would like to pick it up. Um, because yeah, you're right. It's there. There is nothing like it. It's such a unique, even amongst Nintendo IP. It's such a like weird, quirky. I mean, it was his first like feature game, really. You know, if we do count like Mario is missing, you know, the the famous Mario is missing <laughs> um, from the NES days. Uh, this is his right, first. Right, we're just feature. playing like a weird trivia game. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Um, that has Mario skins on top of it. Uh, learning is cool. Um, learning's not cool. Don't start that rumor. Uh, and so th- this was his learn. chance. No, I certainly won't. <laughs> uh, his chance to get to be weird and to be featured and it really defined his character Luigi's Mansion did for basically like like to to the present day in all of the media in which Luigi's appeared i think is filtered through the lens of like what Luigi's Mansion did with him um like in Smash Ultimate like Luigi's almost unrecognizable from you know the the generic Mario body copy that he was even in like Smash Bros. One, that he's like weird and and quirky and like poses strangely and makes weird noises, and it all started there. All started with with Professor Egad in the mansion. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Where Luigi's Mansion established Luigi's character because before that you had you know slight differences in something like Super Mario Brothers Two, where if you chose Luigi, he had the slipperier slipperier sort of mo- movement movement motion. And he had the higher jump, but he was a little bit slower. So you sort of you started adding differenti- differentiation where it's not just a Mario. He's Green Mario, and Luigi's Mansion. You're totally right. Added that sort of he's he's a coward, but he's just trying his best. He's in the shadow of his brother, who's the actual star. Like they really personified that and leaned into it. And you, like you said, you totally saw that in, in later iterations. But also, I melee. I think added some strange characterizations like i think mario or uh smash 64 had like the the winning screen where he's like doing the weird pointing and stuff maybe or he had like the weird dance or something i don't remember what what sort of personality he had in the first game but in melee he definitely had some sort of strangeness to him he became a little bit weirder which i think was it was that the first game where his like his his forward smash was like the weird poke or was that in smash 4 and brawl i can't i obviously i don't remember but I yeah, think it's later. Totally right. than, Luigi's Mansion is just. I just. I, yeah. I think it's. I think it's later than. I think it's later than Melee that his little like choppy okay, okay. his side smash. Yeah, uh, became the the poke later. Poke. I, I think it was Melee where he did have the taunt where he kicks his foot and actually has a hitbox and he can actually hit someone with that. Yeah. I don't know. So that was just like my last few months in games. I didn't even talk about all the games that I played. Uh, I played some other ones but didn't finish. I just wanted to talk about uh. West of Loathing a little bit and Donkey Kong Country a little bit as games that I played but didn't finish. Uh, we should definitely talk about something else though. Which would you rather talk about? Would you rather talk about Metroid right now, or would you rather talk about Denny Villeneuve's Dune Part One? It's like, ask, it's like <laughs> asking me to choose which of my children I love the most. I mean, I... Chris, which of your children do you love the most? And it will be determined by the order in which we speak of them. <laughs> Oh yeah, this is true. Uh, well, I think I think uh, Metroid has the older love by oh maybe only about a year and a half uh, actually. Um, yeah, let's talk about Dread. Let's talk about Dread. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this conversation. Right. So at this point, Dread came out a month ago to the day. Uh, we we're a little bit delayed on this, like I said, because we 
unexpectedly. I did not actually expect EJ to get this game. And then he started playing it and he's liking it enough that he wants to keep playing it. So like, I'm not one to, you know, talk down to a good thing. Like I want my friends to play and enjoy the things that I like and enjoy. So we're, we're recording this without him. We will obviously get his take once he finishes and, or even if he doesn't like get to a finish, whenever he stops, we'll, we'll get his, his impressions of it. Uh, Metroid Dread. I didn't start it until like five days after it came out. So you started a little bit after me even because you were pretty busy. Uh, how long did it take you to finish and what did you think about it from like a top level once you had finished it? Uh, I think it took me, yeah, I don't think I hardly, I, I didn't, I didn't touch it the first weekend it was out cause I was in Oregon, uh, and right. didn't want to bring my switch. I was doing too much stuff and I didn't want to experience it in a handheld, uh, format either. I was like, mm, this will not do. You played only on TV. I did do a little bit of handheld, uh, and I do want to, I'll, I'll share that when I, uh, I'll, I'll talk about that, but I did play a little bit in handheld to see how it looked with the new OLED model. Um, but mostly played it on the TV because I wanted to like drink in every second of this, uh, experience with as big a screen as possible. Um, I think it took me about maybe like, like a week and change. Uh, I think my, Mm -hmm. my playtime was like close to 11 hours, uh, which of course doesn't count like deaths and restarts uh i don't think the clock logs those uh, i might be wrong about Mm-mm, that right uh no it it doesn't uh count deaths and restarts it did for the final boss but they've they patched that to fix it so that it only counts the the time you're alive and succeeding that's good um yeah i guess I- impressions wise i uh i really 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 fucking like this game i as you know, I had communicated with you. I had sort of like middling expectations for how they might, by you know Nintendo's own publicity, like conclude the saga of like Samus Aran and the Metroids. Uh, I-, I thought it was going to be kind of like a paint by numbers. Let's just like button that story, and it'll be like a good game. Uh, but we'll kind of just, just stick to sort of uh, some of the the basic uh, end of game formula stuff that they tend to do. Uh, and I was fucking wrong as fuck and i i thought it was a joy to play i thought it controlled really well i think that and i I said this when samus returns came out that i think that mercury steam understood how to make samus feel more dangerous and physically capable than most of the rest of the other metroid games have where you would just kind of get bulked up as much as possible and pour missiles into bosses. And that was pretty much the strategy was just like shoot more missiles before you happen to take enough damage. But if you have enough energy tanks, you could just kind of like Hulk out and you'll be fine. Uh, This game's not fucking around when it comes to enemy and boss encounters, Uh, even just, I won't say like rank and file, like common enemies, but as you go on, I mean, stuff will hit you for like three quarters of an energy tank per hit. Because they've given you so many new ways of traversing and of dodging and of fighting that are just so frenetic and interesting, like the uh uh oh what's the name of the 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 flash I almost said flash dance uh what's oh, the, the name flash of the shift flash shift oh my god that was a revelation um being able to basically like midair or ground dash up to three times in in either uh left or right direction made the made combating enemies just uh when moving through the environment interesting it made boss battles way more interesting and challenging um 
and just I I was very fucking impressed with this game. I guess is like my my top level impression. Right, totally. I I fully agree with you, especially after playing Samus Returns just a few months ago. Um, after playing that game, my sort of impression was okay. This doesn't have this doesn't have the same vibe as the other two D Metroid games. I think Samus Returns really fails in that aspect, and I think some of that is because of the 3DS, and some of that is because it is a remake of Samus or Metroid Two. Um, but it's not the same problem that I had with like Zero Mission. I did not have that problem with Zero Mission. I had different problems with Zero Mission as far as like tone and like that weird ending. But um, with Samus Returns, the impression that I got is like, okay, these are going to be the guys that are making the next one because I played uh, Samus Returns after E3, so I knew that dread was being made by them these are the people that are going to be handling the next metroid game this is what i should this is the baseline i should be expecting from them and i think that dread surpassed sandwich returns handily obviously because of improved uh hardware but also they took the things that were a little bit rough in uh sam's returns and they improved it like being able to counter while moving is like it can't be understated how much better that makes the game feel especially since you really they really necessitate countering in a lot of uh a lot of the time and i think that the way that they teach you that countering is necessary during you know the shit mob count encounters uh teaches you that when you're facing bosses and you hear that sound and you see that flash like you're gonna have to counter if you really want to succeed against this enemy otherwise you're going to be spending either an interminable amount of time or you won't be able to beat them at all in the case of some uh boss encounters uh this game really added boss fights being good in metroid games in in rare occasions i think metroid boss fights have been good some of the prime bosses were really good uh most of the bosses in 2d metroid games like you said it's just a face it's a face tank endurance match about am i gonna hit the boss in the right place with these missiles or am i gonna take a long time charging and firing at them that way it was so nice to have a a crate fight that was awesome again like the zero mission crate fight was just a little bit annoying I think they're relying too much on it sort of feeling with Super Metroid crate fight and uh, seeing it in, in this new way in the way that Met- uh, Mercury Steam is making Metroid boss fights where it's like a room sort of encounter and like using the using the space in a really w- good way and actually showing the scale of a, of a monster like that. And then as far as story, I would agree with you that they impressed me with what they did, but at the same time, I don't think this is like, this doesn't feel like the fifth game of a five game series. It feels like the sequel to Fusion, which was Fusion was sort of like the uh, Force Awakens of Super Metroid, you know, where it was like, hey, we sort of finished that story and here's like some hand waving to say we're back in it and we have a new threat and it's the X Parasite. They're the bad guys all along. Ha ha. And then this game is is making good on that premise. And honestly, this feels like the second game in a second trilogy. So I don't I don't like that they are saying that this is like the end of a five-part saga because I want there to be a part six that actually concludes it because this doesn't feel like a conclusion. It feels like a middle point where they could easily like I know I know they never have, and we've talked about this where we're talking about the the Galactic Federation that you know Fusion sort of implied that the Galactic Federation was mad at her, but they sent her on this mission and like there's no indication that the galactic federation is anything but like a plot point and like a means to an end and like a uh, a nameless faceless organization that just sort of sends this quote unquote bounty hunter on quote unquote bounties where really you're just like a planet 
destroying murder machine <laughs> that just <laughs> terminates your way through whatever problem comes up against you. And we well, can talk about that too with like the personification of, of Samus and like who she really is and how she's portrayed and all this. But from a story perspective, I thought there was like some questions. I was like, I don't know if that really needed to be asked or I don't even know what you're asking. But overall, I think it, it had some really high highs. And like you said, the motion, I think the mobility in this game is where it ex- excels the most. I think the exploring is good and the room puzzles where you're like the shine spark puzzles are fantastic. And like seeing something and saying, I don't know how to get that yet, but I will is mostly okay. But it's not like 10 out of 10, I guess. I think that this is a rare instance where I look at a game that I'm really fond of being evaluated and think that it's probably about correct. Like I think open critic landed on like 88 or 89. Yeah. Uh, mm. And I, I, I would, I would put a little higher than that. I, I think it's an A. If I'm just looking at like, okay, like how, how good is this game on on the scale of like just game making? Uh, of of uh, how does it look? How does it sound? How does it feel? How does it handle? Is it challenging? Is it too challenging? Does it sit in the sweet spot? Does it hold my hand? Uh, so I think I think it's an A. So for for me, it's probably like a 91 or 92. Um, with moments that are. That, that could push it higher if they were more more consistent uh like you said that there's some really really high highs especially in especially in the back half of the game um when when stuff totally, started to yeah. go kind of bonkers that uh left me feeling really high about it and then when i you know reflect on the whole experience i'm like yeah it's probably like a 91 92 maybe 93 um it's interesting you felt that way about the 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 story and it feeling like an incomplete part of like this second sort of thing. I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to like unpack that a little bit and like give a spoiler warning and dive in to dive into that? Or do you want to keep like bullet pointing stuff and, and hitting some uh, more broadly hitting some areas? Like what, how do we want to run this? What do you want to do? Yeah, sure. We can jump into some spoilers. So uh, if you're interested in the story of the Metroid series, then I would, you know, fair warning to you. Maybe we can, uh, figure out how to put some timestamps in here and warn you about that. So yeah, from the get-go, you start and you land on this planet that has been uh, determined that there is a living ex-parasite, that being the whole big, the big bad from uh, Fusion. And that is the, uh, the impetus for Samus to go take this bounty, which I liked this intro. This intro, I think, is super strong especially if you're interested in the in the Metroid storyline because it has, you know, Adam talking to you and saying and talking about the bounty that you're that you're pursuing and saying this isn't worth it. I don't know why you're taking this. And that asks a lot of really interesting char- uh questions to the to the player about the character of Samus and what she has, like what her motivations are. It's not just about the money for her in this moment. It is about finishing what she started on the the biologic space lab. And I thought that would be sort of more of the the storyline is like characterizing this this person that you've played as in all these games, and you haven't really seen a lot of character from her. And as the game progresses, you you get hints of that, like the the middle. So there's like three really big story moments throughout the game, which I think is a little bit unfortunate that it was only those three. But the beginning and the middle and the end are all like it's it's sort of downhill. I think that the beginning is super strong. It has the least, you know, stakes 
for a person coming into it. It's the most important because it needs to hook you, but it's also the part where they can be the vaguest and the most open because you want those questions. You want to be asking questions in the beginning and being answered questions at the end. And I think they did a great job of asking questions. And I think Sakamoto is really good at asking questions, but I don't think he's very good at answering them. And I think that's one of the biggest problems with the other M. And I think it's less of a problem, but still present in this game where in the beginning you ask all these great questions and it gets you hooked and you're interested in the character and you're interested in who is this Chozo that just fucked me up and took all my powers. What happened there? What was that glow? What What's happening? And then you get some sort of uh, hints along the way from that when you in the middle when you meet Quiet Robe and he's breaking down like, oh, these two tribes, asking more questions, saying there's two tribes, the Thoha, the Makin, which is like, you know, it's sort of throwing in like sci-fi fantasy stuff at you and, and, and talking about, oh, this, this DNA in you is what's controlling, it's what's controlled the Metroids. We were the ones who made the Metroids. It's sort of, uh, it's answering questions from Samus Returns, actually, which is strange that they'd be, it's the stuff that they retconned into to Metroid 2 to like make it fit more into the, the five-part saga. And I don't know, it was cool, obviously, hearing Chozo dialogue. Hearing dialogue in a Metroid game is cool, despite where it's been poorly done in the past. Because it's so, it's so rare, obviously, and when there's only three moments in the game where you're hearing a person speak then it's it's more interesting in that way but it's still they're they're trying to hang this tent on these three pillars and it's not necessarily holding it up all the way i would want it to be paced not paced better but do you know what i mean like no i'm making sense here like you want that it doesn't have that like rising action the stakes rise in the middle because the x parasites come out and it actually affects gameplay and you have this character that's introduced to you that seems like a a cool dude and then he gets fucking murked and that sucks. And you're like, oh, dang, that sucks. And then you have like this uh, more reason to, I guess, more reason to fight, sort of. But I don't know. It's like weird that he's the one that's controlling. The, I mean, it's not that weird because the central units with the mother brain reference, that's cool. I like that. That's awesome. And them controlling the Emmys, that makes sense, like in a, in a lore, in a lore sense. And Quiet Robe turning them off at that moment doesn't make sense. It's just like a thing that happens because it has to for the mechanics of the, the gameplay, but not for the story. And then we'll talk about the end in a minute, but give me some, give me something here with the middle, because this, I think the beginning is strong and the middle is cool, but I don't know if it's good in a way, you know? Yeah. I think, I think the middle was, was the, the weakest point. I, I, I agree that we, we got our story as it was like spoken and given in, in bigger chunks and, Things outside of Adam just going like, hey, here's a little bit of information that I've been able to figure out. Well, quote unquote, Adam, quote unquote, Adam, um, which we'll talk about uh, giving you little pieces of information. But mostly, uh, yeah, it's, it's you get the beginning, which I agree coming to this planet. Oh, there's an ex parasite. And then this I've been waiting for literal decades to get this kind of information about Chozo. and. You show up, and there is a Chozo. He's got the the exoskeleton. The armor that he's wearing looks just like your fucking power suit. He's got an arm cannon that looks like your fucking arm cannon, and he just mops the floor with you, even with you at full power. And you sort of sit in that question for the whole rest of the game of, if that is, if that's like full power, full power-ups coming to this planet, and I can barely put a dent in this guy, like, I literally didn't see how I was going to, how we were going to, we were ever going to be able to beat him. 
even with like the, oh, you've got all your stuff back. Now maybe you're a match for him. I mean, they made pretty clear throughout, like you are not going to be able to fight him even with all of the, all the stuff that you picked up. And it makes perfect sense because they told us that story really clearly in the beginning that Samus is just literally no match, no match for this Chozo. And then, yeah, we get to Quiet Robe and I was excited and like, oh yes, like a, a Chozo, oh, different tribes, like all this lore. And then I went, this monologue is still going. It is still going. It is a long ass monologue. I'm like, this, this is all so wonderful, but how could this have been given to me in ways that weren't just dropping a bucket of snow on my head uh, and then waiting right. for me to react to it? I, I, I just, I always go back to, I always go back to Metroid Prime because I think it's just a masterclass in ambient non-linear i guess is not the right term but uh not not forced uh, storytelling right right i think the way metroid prime does it is it gives you more agency like you're the one who's scanning and picking the thing up and looking at it and reading it and that gives you more agency and it makes it more interactive whether or not it actually is and that sort of trope has been beaten to death so that'll be interesting to see how they do that in prime 4 but with this game, this is more the way they did it in Prime 2 with like the Luminoth dude that would tell you, okay, you got to go to this next area and this is the, the right. whole deal, Torvis Bog and all that crap. So you're totally right. I think that, was, that wasn't that was as much of a bummer to me just because it was really cool hearing this dialogue spoken, even though it wasn't English, it was, you know, it was an Achozo dialogue and people have actually broken down like, oh, it's like based on, it's similar to Arabic. It's got you know, the way they pronounce Metroid is more like, like the way they pronounce things is different. They've got these, uh, it's an actual language. It's not just like gibberish, which yeah. is funny because if you're listening and, and some words might stick out to you because he says Zobolba like three or four times because that means Zobolba. however. <laughs> yeah. So he's literally just like, he's about to turn into Wado over there. <laughs> uh, Samus, you are a mocking. Want to see my chance cubes? <laughs> anyway, oh God! Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but just uh, having that, having that lead up, having that dialogue, having this character speak to you, and having that just be the expectation of that interaction is this character speaking to you, and then Samus speaking back and also in in a Chozo dialogue and saying, "Don't worry, I'll take care of it." Yeah, that's that all she was, says in the entire game. I was okay. I didn't expect her to say anything, but the fact that we got that one line just of her getting to speak this, like speak the language of the people who saved her. Like, again, I've been waiting for Chozo shit for fucking ever. Like I was the kid, like Googling stuff back in ye old, like windows 95 days, just trying to get like more information and like reading the janky fan translations of the, of the comic books that like outlined all the history of like her training on Zeppis with the, with the Chozo um those manga you know your little brother isn't the only joey samus also ha has her own joey <laughs> i yeah i don't right. know if you've ever read that one I, I haven't read any of the manga i've read some like obviously i've been on some wikis w along you know same as you but yeah uh so i i i loved all that stuff i i i would have loved for you know, just, I don't know, maybe they could have, like, peppered it into the save stations or different points of the game, just uh, walls that you could interact with or or items you could collect that would uh, give you little pieces of things. I, yeah, just so that it would be so a little bit more spread out. And like you said, not this, like, tri-corner tent that's trying to, like, hold up the weight of the plot of this game. Not that it was, like, a heavy mm -hmm. weight to bear, but just 
you know, only three points of support basically for the whole story. I want to talk about a little bit like the characterization of Samus in this game because I think that I think it was I think it was strong and I think that it it was a uh, uh, they did more with less in a way that I think is really true to the history of this game. Uh, like you know, we all know other M got kind of overwrought with its storytelling, regardless of your opinions on Kinda. like how well they executed it or not. You know, it was like more, more, sure. more, 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 more dialogue, more flashbacks, more characterization. And in this or one, spoken was, inner monologue. Yeah, yeah. God, As, <laughs> speaking of David Lynch's Dune, uh, how well did that go? <laughs> um, <laughs> it went very poorly. Just ask him about it. Uh, and it was little things like when you meet Quiet Robe for the first time and Samus is just about to get, you know, like, you know, murked by this Emmy and the Emmy shuts down and you hear something behind you and Samus like whips around and immediately trains their arm cannon and oh, it's a Chozo. And there's this long beat of recognition and then just a really simple, like the arm cannon swings down and like the hands go to rest on the knees and there's like a little movement of the head that just communicated so fucking much to me. It just struck me. And then in the scene that you described where, where Quiet Robe gets taken out by these uh, uh, Chozo mechs, um, I think they were mechs. Were they, were they organic, the, the, yeah. the Chozo fighters? They yeah. were organic? The Chozo okay. robots, yeah. Yeah. Uh, when, They're inorganic, when, yeah. Because when you, when you fight them later, there's no ex-parasites popping out of them. That's right, that's right. Uh, when Quiet Robe gets, gets assassinated, you see this, I mean, this, this look of, like, of, of shock, of rage, like pass over Samus's face, and then you fight. And then you fight, uh, you, you, you fight your first Chozo, Chozo robot and you, you take it out and there's this really long shot of Samus just looking at Quiet Robe's body and it just lingers on that shot so long. And I, I saw some, you know, s- some stuff online, some think pieces that were sort of like, you don't have to make Samus cold and heartless to show that she's a badass. And I'm like, I could not fucking disagree any more with your assessment of this and and the the choices they made in terms of like the camera work in that scene that they made a really fucking conscious choice that we're just going to live in this shot and she gets to have whatever reaction she gets to have but she spent a long fucking time looking at that body because this is her family and these are the these are the the creatures who who raised her who gave her like a second lease on life basically and i don't know i just thought i just thought it communicated a lot uh, and, and there were other little moments like that, that, that told me a ton of story. Like, you know, it was in the trailer and it got me hype in the trailer and got me hype in the game of, of Craig, like gnashing at his, uh, at his restraints, trying to like break out and kill this creature who has like fucked him up time and time again. And Sam is just staring up at him and doesn't move and doesn't, doesn't move at all. And just immediately like loads a charge beam. Like just it's chef's kiss. It's just such a good job of doing more with less. And then at the same time, we also get all these big fucking plot dumps. Um, and then we move on to the later stages of the game. And I well, really quickly, I want to I want to uh, sort of respond to you talking about the interaction with Quiet Robe in that for me, like, I don't agree that this game portrays Samus as being cold and heartless or anything like that. but. I don't think they necessarily nailed the uh, the interaction with Quiet Robe. I don't think we saw enough of Samus responding to 
his talking. I think a lot of that is because obviously she's in the full power suit while that conversation is happening, which is a choice. It's easier to animate. You don't have to do as much like visual, uh, like face capture, like animation rigging for that. But I think it's really hard. It's really hard to have a masked character and to have uh, them to have pathos. And I think a show like Mandalorian, I think actually did a really good job, but that's also over about 20 hours and this character speaking a lot and having interactions with a wide range of characters versus Samus saying one line in a foreign language to one character that we've known for 10 seconds and is killed uh, and then nothing for the rest of the game. So it's really hard to do expressive animation in that way. And the moment that you're talking about where she uh, is encountering the Emmy, she's knocked on her ass and then she turns and looks and, shoot and points her gun at who, who approached her. It isn't immediately after that she lets go. It's that quiet row bows to her and she sees, oh, this, this guy's not trying to kill me. And then she has that moment of respite. And I liked that. I thought that was really good. The moment that you're talking about where it's quiet row's body and her looking at it is not a long shot. If you go back and watch that again, it may feel like a long shot because for, for me, it took me maybe three or four tries to kill that Chozo robot because that's actually a pretty hard encounter. And Absolutely. he does a lot of damage. The red spark attack has a ridiculous hitbox, which is not good. It's not a good hitbox on that thing. And doing the jump and dodge over him, it's it's a tough fight. So you're probably going to do it a couple times. You're going to have to skip through that initial scene. And then that end scene is, it's like a beat. And then she turns and is and she's ready to go. So I think they could have done a really long shot of her looking at the body and maybe not emoting somehow, but just like give her time to for your own internal narrative to project onto that character and and for you to think what is she thinking what is she feeling and then they could they could have leaned on that a lot harder because she's not doing anything right there she's just looking at the character that just gave her this plot dump <laughs> and now is dead and it's implied that the thoha tribe is the same tribe that uh potentially uh the the chozo that raised her the what there's gray voice and uh I mean, this is obviously also stuff that's not shown in the games at all. So if you're not even just a casual Metroid plant, you can play every single Metroid game. And this is the first time you've met a Chozo with a name and that it's hard because, you know, obviously they want the manga to be a uh, canon, but can it be without it being shown in the games at all? I mean, you see portraits in the end of Zero Mission, and that is the extent of there being like Chozo stuff. You fight Chozo ghosts in Metroid Prime, but that's not the same. You, you fight the Torizo in Super Metroid, but that's a robot of a Chozo that was just the thing holding your power-ups for four games or whatever. So it didn't have, I mean, it has a lot of impact because if you're a fan of the series, you're the type of person who looks at Wikipedia articles and looks at the, the Metroid uh, manga fan translation stuff, then it, it has impact, but it, it has a considerable less impact if you try to look at it from fresh eyes. And I think they could have done more with Samus's sort of uh, reaction to stuff because it is good. It's cool to see Samus be a proficient warrior and to be this like strong individual who does not like balk at a challenge that's, uh, that's approaching her and her reaction to create is cool, but it doesn't have like pathos. It's not very interesting, which is unfortunate. Like obviously you can only do so much with like a uh, pre fight cutscene with like a big monster that doesn't talk either like the crate thing i think is about as good as you can do but let's talk about the the end speaking encounter with quote-unquote adam well it's really just like a lead up because before that even you get a really cool scene i really like 
the encounter oh. where you're walking into Hanubia and you have you're walking in this room with all these like you know pods of creatures and it's like it's a cutscene so you know some shit's gonna happen and this thing pops out it's just like one of your little shit enemies that have been attacking you for the entire game and samus you know does a quick time little counter and then the hand and it's a similar thing where you saw you saw that hand that you know contortion that she did was that that was in i can't see i have a little bit of trouble myself was that just in the trailers or was that or not just in, but like, was that shown in the trailers in that context? Or was that also something that you saw when, um, when Ravenbeak attacked her in the beginning of the game, or you just saw that color, you saw that, that not purple, but kind of like a, like a, a violet or a fuchsia sort of glow. I face. think, yeah, I think it was, you do see it in, uh, in you that see, first you see encounter. Implied, and then you start, you, you associate that with like a, a change, like something's happening and you see her, react to that and you actually see her react to something you see her face she looks at her hand that's like that's that's strongly emoted she doesn't know what's happening either this isn't like a power that she has and is like comfortable with and i think that is really cool and then they they play into that further with the interaction with fake adam and it's a fake out you know adam has not been talking to you since the very beginning of the game the adam that's been speaking to you is raven beak sitting up in his computer chair at the top of Itarash and just like typing and sending you DMs. <laughs> oh God, that's yeah. You up? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> there. Well, there's one thing. There's one thing we're missing, which I think is. Uh, I think is is one of my favorite moments of the game that speaks to the like doing more with less. And it is yeah. There's the moment with with like you said the the little like you know rando kind of enemy. But the last Emmy encounter, like I was watching that. Like Emmy defeated, you know, blank of blank on the map. Right, screen and that's and going, like actually when you when you first have that scene, like it's uh with the the rando enemy. That's in Hanubia. It's the final area of the game, and it's just like a it's a raising that entire last area is an actual like plot structure with like rising action, and that's the first time that's happened since the the middle of the game. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you get at long last, like the final Emmy reveals itself and, co- and comes towards Samus and is bearing down on Samus. And that reaction happens again on her arm, and she just grabs a hold of the Emmy, and the Emmy just just goes to pieces in her arm and just falls apart. And I mean, you know, like me, me being me and who I am, like I, I could see exactly what this was like right away, and my fucking jaw hit the floor. I was like. I never in a million years thought that they were going to actually take this idea of like Samus with Metroid DNA to its logical conclusion that she would become a fucking Metroid and have the ability that Metroids have, which is to drain the energy out of her enemies. And as she's like grabbing a hold of this Emmy and just draining the life out of it and draining the ability out of it, I like... And they never say a fucking word. They never tell you that's what's going on. Not yet. They they don't tell you that's what's going on. They just leave you to either go, what the fuck was that? Or for people who played Metroid games before to go, she has fucking Metroid abilities now. And again, it's the logical conclusion of the relationship of Samus and the Metroids, like going all the way back to the discovery of them being used as weapons by space pirates in the first game, the baby Metroid sacrificing itself for Samus the metroid dna vaccine and now she has become the title of the series as you said right even action. in the the metroid in uh samus returns 
I don't remember if it was established beforehand, but they, they truly make it like actual canon in that game and like a main plot point that the Chozo were the ones that created the Metroid as a way to combat the X-Parasite, which obviously we could talk about, you know, oh, we made we made a parasite to fight the parasite. Oops. I guess we're not that smart of, of, of weird bird magicians as we as we may have <laughs> made ourselves out to be. But to your point where they don't say they don't, you know, say, oh, she's got Metroid powers. They do in the next scene. Like as soon as you walk into the next room, it's an atom safe station and it says, oh, it seems like your Metroid powers have awakened. This must be, you know, because of your Metroid DNA that you received as a vaccine to fight the X parasite that inhabited you in the beginning of Metroid Fusion last last time we made a game in 2002. It, it, it is a little bit hyper verbose in some of those ways, but because of like the robot voice, it makes it more of just like a, a audio thing that's happening while you're reading it. It's, it's more text to speech than it is actual dialogue. And then the reveal, how did you feel about the reveal of Adam actually being Ravenbeak all along? Um, interestingly, I, I thought something was up, but it's not what I thought was going to be up. And you said it earlier that I was sure that either Adam was going to be working for the Galactic Federation, that the ME were going to be sent by the Galactic Federation specifically to harvest the Metroid DNA from Samus because of the fact that that was like their whole thing in Fusion. And obviously and they're going to be pretty... And other M. And they're going to be pretty pissed that she blew up their station and then blew up a fucking planet. And apparently they're not. And I think that that is like a, a pretty gaping plot hole, um, as you as you have said. Um, when Adam said... Prior to going from Hanubia up to Iterash, is that the name of the station? Um, prior yeah. to prior to going up to uh, uh, fulfill your destiny, I thought, what the fuck does that mean? Like, it was either very cheesy, not justified at all video game dialogue, or Adam is has ulterior motives. So I was wondering, okay, what is the reveal going to be? So then we get that the, the reveal is it hasn't been Adam the entire time and Ravenbeak's been leading her here for some reason. I thought, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I totally, I like, I'm good with that. I buy that, that he needed to right. like fatten her up, so to speak, so that he could be sure that what he thought he saw is what he saw. And by the time Samus makes it up to Hanubia, he's like, yep, I bet on the right horse. She does have the ability that Metroids have. I could still salvage this plan. I could still salvage this plan as long as I can take her out. Which, I mean, it's a dumb plan. There's a lot of problems with it. And I don't know necessarily if Ravenbeak is like a reliable narrator or a reliable source of information. And that turns some of the interactions you had with him as Adam into sort of like a strange, like, why why is he helping me get through these locations when if he can keep me weaker then the M, he can just extract the Metroid DNA and he can go on his happy way and just do the Metroid stuff. Also, why is he still hanging out on his planet with this X parasite that took over every single soldier he had with him? Why didn't he like dip out and go somewhere else? Like, I don't know. It, well, he, it asks well, he did, a lot ultimately. of questions and then leaves a lot of other questions unasked. So oh, it turns into, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not like trying to nitpick, but it just, it didn't really feel satisfying in some senses as that being like the 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 big reveal i think also adam as a character like this ai version of a character we're supposed to like but never had the opportunity to because the one game he's in was ass <sighs> just as a character is a little bit weak obviously it's a character that you're supposed to find venerable because samus 
finds venerable but isn't hasn't been shown to be like a good source of information anyway and for half of fusion is also working against you as a question that was asked but never answered because that's how sakamoto works um interestingly like it's cool i think they they nailed it in the sense that you look at it in retrospect and you say well that makes a lot more sense than <laughs> like that's a good thing that they that they did and it wasn't like a haha gotcha it was it was me all along it was more of a i i should have seen that coming so, sort of thing almost almost it was it didn't make you feel dumb for not noticing it but it maybe made some questions that you were asking yourself n- maybe not out loud but like in your head make more sense like him not calling you lady calling you lady twice in the opening cutscene and not calling you lady ever again which on its head is also like a stupid thing that they <laughs> that they made as like the canon that's like the one defining feature for that character is that he says any objections lady that's the only thing that adam has as a character yeah <laughs> which bouncing off true. of samus's only thing as a character is pointing her gun at things makes it a a stupid interaction when you look at it at face value <laughs> yeah and i mean i I, I all the Raven Beak stuff makes perfect sense to me that the plan initially was like bring Samus to the planet by showing the ex parasites and trusting that she's going to feel some kind of obligation to take care of this check. And then once she's there, it could have been I, I mean, he, he won the first fight. He could have extracted the DNA and like tossed her body into the bottom of Berenia to like sink down to the water and decompose. And that could have been the end of it. But he saw the potential for this human metroid hybrid and he's like if i had an army of that instead of an army of death jellyfish that changes the game substantially for what his end goal could be so right. to have- i agree it's it's in character because the thing that he says multiple times is power is everything quiet robe says he is a Machin and their tribe worships at the altar of power and so he wants you to be powerful right. he wants you to be he said he called he says you are now a worthy opponent or you know you you can't fight him yet you're not a worthy opponent that's something that he says as adam early in the game even and like that phrasing makes a lot more sense looking at it through the lens that oh that was never adam to begin with but i don't i don't even want to like be nitpicky in that regard i think the the characterization of this this big bad was like fine i'm just saying in the context of you have to care about samus as a character and they don't give you a lot to work with and that's unfortunate because if this is like not even if this is your first Metroid game, if you've played most of the Metroid games and maybe you don't remember the the ending artwork from Zero Mission, you have no context to really understand, oh, okay, so Samus is a human whose parents were killed by Ridley and then was raised by Chozo. That's not point that's not like pointed out to you in any of these games. So when they have this big reveal that some of the Chozo DNA, because oh yeah, we forgot to say that she also has Chozo DNA. That's why she can wear the power suit. It's because that's that's Chozo tech, and she has Chozo DNA because otherwise she wouldn't be able to survive on the the harsh conditions of Planet Zebes. Like that's not told you anywhere. That's because I've read a fucking wiki. I'm bringing so much into this storyline that makes it actually land. That it's unfortunate because it has a cool it has a cool story in some way. It's like most of the way. It's most of the way there. But if you don't have that at all, then you're saying you get this weird reveal at the end that this character calls her daughter and you're like, wait, is he her dad? What is going on here? Like it's just like a weird Thanos scenario. I mean, which it, it totally is a Thanos scenario with it's a Thanos Gamora oh, scenario. Yeah. Wow. Kind of both actually being raised by, by him anyway, but you know, you know what I'm talking about? Am I making sense here? Yeah. yeah you're making sense at the same time though. I, I think that 
who's fucking playing this game, man? Like, whose first Metroid game is this? Like, not a lot of fucking So people's. many. This is going to be the best-selling Metroid game by a large margin. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Easily. that's awesome. I, 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 no, I think you're right. And so I don't know. I think they had to they had to walk the line and not like spell everything out or the people who who know this franchise are going to be like, oh, God, this is so obvious and heavy handed. I, I fucking loved it. You know, like I, I, it's impossible for me to be objective about this. Like, when obviously, we get, yeah, I know. And I know. When, and I'm trying to I'm trying to give you like the 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 perspective. I'm trying to open your eyes to like the context of maybe this isn't someone's you know, this isn't someone waiting 19 years for a Metroid game. Like they're trying to market it that way, which is, I think, fair. And it does pay off some things. It doesn't pay off like a whole lot, but it does like add some, oh, so that's how it happened. You know, that kind of thing. But yeah, it's oh, that's really how she hard got her shows for me. DNA. Yeah, it's just really hard for me to be like, yeah, they totally knocked it out of the park when they gave you payoff, but without the proper setup for it. Like they ask some questions about why she's there, but they don't ask any questions about, her childhood or like why she can adapt these powers they sort of like hand wave it away like in dialogue with fake adam like oh the reason why the metroid dna didn't take you over immediately is because of your thoha genes or i guess that was a that was a quiet row but like the whole genetic like that's weird and problematic in and of itself like oh your thoha genes made you made you control the metroid power but your Machin genes made you a strong warrior and it's like I don't know. That's how genetics work. And I don't like the world that you're creating that that's where it does work. <laughs> I don't know. It makes sense you just have to, to jam me, files that... into me to get more powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's all Metroid is, is just like jamming things into your suit to get stronger. No, but I, I yeah, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't, I didn't think that hard about it. I think maybe is, is part of it too, that I went, oh, okay, like she's got genetics from both tribes. I buy that. Maybe it's she needed like the Toha to survive Zebus and she needed the Machin to be able to like wield the power suit. Whatever it is, you know, she's got multiple donors. Oh, she's got a donor that has has DNA from multiple tribes. But like, regardless of what it is, um, she hadn't been she hadn't been put into a situation. I, I think that maybe that she was like threatened in the manner that she was or. Well, no, I think I think specifically it was the fact that like the Metroid DNA responding to Ravenbeak specifically as a member of the Machin tribe that was like fuck you, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Like, there's a reason why the Which Toha had to control Which is also weird. Them. I don't understand why that was, like, a thing that they had to specify. Oh, the Thoha made the Metroid specifically to not like the Machin, even though they made it for the Machin based on the lore dump that happened to fight the X-Parasite on SF388. Like, yeah, because they're not, they're not trustworthy, trustworthy. but they're and they the ones, that, time they, they time were the ones that, that made them do it. <laughs> And obviously they were right not to be trustworthy, but that seems like a weird thing that like these Thoha were dumb enough and gullible enough to do it for this like warrior tribe in the first place. What the fuck were they thinking? <laughs> well, they're like, if as long if we can control them, then we can keep them from like running amok. Presumably was was the thought process. But yeah, it's a little specious. I'll I'll give you that. But I'll tell you why we needed it. We needed it because it bought us the fucking spectacular ending of this game <laughs> like yeah that you're is right what i mean it bought us. i'm not i'm not trying to like hyper like you know fixate on these minor sort of faults in the long run because i think they are very minor i think a lot of the really deep payoffs that you and i appreciate were really deep because of our extracurricular you know research into this nonsense yeah. but yeah. i i think it also is not even like a weak payoff because of the stuff they laid up prior. It's it, 
it makes the player feel confused and like they're not in on it. And that's just what I wanted to to talk about. But you're right. The payoff of the Metroid DNA really reawakening an actually an actual long shot of her being, you know, having this kick ass boss fight, a amazing boss fight. Holy shit. And bounds better than the Ridley fight from Samus Returns. This was truly a fabulous boss fight. The three stages were all very distinct, very interesting, really asked a lot of the player, but in the end was not too hard. I know a lot of people may have found this game too hard. We can talk about that later as well, but I didn't find it too hard. I I did it in less than 10 tries, probably. It's a long fight if you don't really know what you're doing, but once you have it down, like I can knock that fight out pretty quick. And yeah. you're rewarded at the end of that fight with this scene of this big bad having beaten Samus a second time and saying, dude, give up. I, I beat you. And Samus in her way, obviously is uh, not going to let that happen. <laughs> well, but <laughs> she but, just goes ape shit. Okay. But, but before that, like you said, like you feel like you're winning, you feel like you've like beaten this guy back. And then he just grabs you by the throat again. And Samus tries to go drain him and he's not having it. He's like, no, like, do you really think you could beat me? No. And like telling her to sleep and sleep and then the light on the visor just shuts off. And like that is an actual like six to seven second shot of us just like looking at her helmet with the visor completely off. And waiting because you know it's about to pop off. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sitting here going, what the fuck is going to happen? Like, I'm just like, I I don't understand. And I finally beat this boss fight. How's she going to get out of this one? (laughs) Yeah. What's going to happen? Next time on Dragon Ball Z. And then the light on the suit, like, just abruptly reactivates. Samus starts screaming and grabs a hold of Ravenbeak's face. Her body starts changing. And we get these shots to, like, uh, like long shots of the Iterash station and energy just being, like, sucked out of the station towards the top of the station as Samus is, like, draining Ravenbeak's energy, draining the entire fucking space station, cutting back and forth between the two of them. Something's happening with the, with her body, with the suit that we don't get a great look at, and the station smashes into the ground. And then when we finally get lights up again, we get my single favorite fucking power suit of all goddamn time, which I'm, I call it the Metroid suit. I don't know what else you could possibly Everyone. call it. Everyone calls it the Metroid suit. I'll tell you that right this, now. I've been on the internet and everyone calls it that. <laughs> this spiky, angular, organic, beefy, Metroid plate armor looking suit where she has gone full fucking Metroid half-breed. And here comes Ravenbeak like staggering out across the train and a single ex-parasite drops down and just like absorbs right into him. He turns into this giant fucking mutant Chozo ex-parasite thing. And I'm thinking, there's going to be another boss fight. Are you fucking kidding me? Did you notice that that's Kraid? I had I had an inkling. I had an inkling, but I was not 100% sure. Yeah, it's, with it's a little, totally like, Kraid, whose face splits open and Ravenbeak's face is inside, like, to- like total body horror, disgusting creature, l- very big payoff, and you just get the same behind-the-back shot that you've, you're used to from your uh, Omega Beam interactions with the, the Emmys, and you get motherfucking Hyper Beam. You get true Hyper Beam, it's called Hyper Beam, that door at the end, if you go to the map, it's called Hyper Beam Door. It is a one-to-one shout out to the end of super metroid where the 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 metroid absorbs power from mother brain and gives it to you 
and you're just destroying, you're laying to waste everything that's in your path, no matter what be- what block is in your way, you just blast the fuck out of it in that escape I sequence. I didn't know the door was a hyperbeam <laughs> door. What? Oh my yep. god! Okay, yeah, it was... Yeah, you 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 shred with like a cinematic fight basically of like eviscerating this like you know final big X parasite and then escape sequence baby the planet's going up in flames and like you said just like heart pounding like my my heart is in my throat like blasting everything in front of me oh fuck I can't go this way which way am I supposed to go like backtracking and then firing and whoo god yeah and then at last getting to the ship and uh, uh hopping in and Adam saying do not literally don't touch that dial uh, because you will <laughs> you will drain you will drain all of the power out of the ship and we will not be able to get off the planet and sam is just sitting there going well what the fuck do i do now um and then turning and, then and out seeing of left that field <laughs> out of left field the x parasite that infected quiet robe aka quiet robe x parasite i don't i don't really know how to refer to it is, well, is based on behind based you. on the naming the nomenclature of uh, Metroid Fusion, this would be QRX because SAX was your Samus Aran, Samus Aran cl- clone. You right, thingy, thingy. you right. <laughs> and there is the QRX uh, looking at you, and it bows, and the it it turns into an X parasite and flies towards you, and absorbs into your body and neutralizes the Metroid suit. And Samus can then operate her ship and get off of the planet safely. Now, Nick, you you were not buying this ending. Talk to me about your response to to this ending. It reads to me as a very rushed sort of hand wavy explanation to why Samus is not fully Metroid suited up and can get the fuck out of there. Like there's it just doesn't make a lot of sense. We haven't seen ex-parasite creatures like this act this way. The the SAX on the BSL maintained their their Metroid hunting ways even as Samus, which makes sense because the ex-parasites are in that game and I don't know if they really talk about it in this game, but in that game they were said they are like mortal enemies with Metroids. And it does not make sense to me that the ending of this game would have a ex-parasite neutralize her metroid powers where the whole point of the metroid powers were to destroy the x parasites so it seems like they're just saying oh the people understand that the thoha genes you know calm down the metroid genes like that's how genes work and that's how this game works that's how that that happens but it's like undercut by the fact that you're absorbing x parasites all the freaking time and all it does is like regain your health and missiles (laughs) which is like a weird thing that they added they had in fusion because that was like their way of doing energy and missile reloads. So it's like I've, a mechanic based storytelling. Like not really. It's just like a, a, a hand wavy explanation. That's, that's the vibe I got from it. I think I figured it out and it didn't take me like that long when I, when I really sat to like thinking about, okay, how does this make sense? Does it not make sense? Um, I don't think that, I want to start by saying I don't think that uh, QRX, as we have uh, as we have dubbed it, um, I don't think it was there with uh, positive intent. I think that some people's impression was that oh, somehow Quiet Robe, even when when he is you know ex-parasited in his corpse form, is still working for the benefit of Samus. That doesn't make a fucking lick of sense to me because as soon as that body stood up, it immediately reactivated the Emmys. So. Right. 
And so it I don't does think- speak in that moment also. I can't remember what he says because it's not subtitled, but I think it is, it like echoes the last thing that he said to Samus, like saying you are our last hope or something like that. Yeah, Which you puts another right. wrench in the works where it's like we're asking questions that are not being answered and just sort of like, oh, we're asking a cool question because it's a cool question, not because it's for the purpose of a story, you know. But anyway, please go on. Yeah. So the, the QRX, I don't think is there to it's not there with positive intent. It is 100 percent there to try to kill Samus, to try to to try to kill this being that has Metroid DNA in it. Um, I think that as we know from Metroid Fusion the ex-parasites mimic the uh, uh, genetic makeups of their host. They mimic the cellular structures and genetic makeups of their host. And I think that in that, in that moment, the, 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 the bow, I think, is no more than a, than a mimicked behavior and the move towards Samus and active aggression. And if this ex-parasite is mimicking the genetic structure of a Toha Chozo, one who is of like a particular stature, maybe that comes into play. Uh, I think it stands to reason that an X of a, a reasonable amount of power mimicking that genetic structure could neutralize the Metroid DNA in Samus. That's that's all I got. I, just, I think I'm I'm reading way between these lines. This is no fucking yeah, I think way you're what Mercury way seem more, intended. Yeah, that's like a huge benefit of the doubt. That's you filling in the gaps that they left there intentionally or not. And that's that's fair obviously like you can approach any story however you want but for me like if even if you do like try to read more into it like say okay in fusion we saw that the x parasites can also inherit memories of the hosts that they're inhabiting we saw yep. that with the the scientist that's operating the uh whatever it's he's doing something he's doing some scientist thing because he has scientist knowledge from the the host and yeah. you could even read into that, like with Neo Ridley, like the, the Ridley fight, Ridley's fighting you, not just because the ex-parasite wants to fight you, but because Ridley wants to fight you too. Yeah. So if Quiet Robe maintains some of his um, knowledge, like does he know something uh, that would let him on the ship? Also, Adam, at the end of Fusion, talks about letting those animals on the ship because they don't have the ex-parasite. So Adam obviously has control of the ship and can let people on or keep people out like why does he let quiet robe on if he's obviously inhabited by an ex-parasite the last like ex-parasite basically like there are other ex-parasite obviously the ex-parasites have taken over the entire planet the entire planet gets blown up uh there's no risk of x anymore unless you know they do oh actually there was another chozo tribe and they took another ex-parasite somewhere else and they could continue that you know ad nauseum but i don't think they are i think they're but they say conclusion no. of the Metroid storyline. I think they mean the X parasite storyline because obviously, as we know, the last Metroid is not in captivity. She's gunning off that planet going where the hell she wants. So well, not anymore. The galaxy is not at peace. <laughs> no, the DNA is gone. I think it's gone, gone. I don't even think that it was the, 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 the quiet robes, the QRX neutralized just like the Metroid suit. I think it's gone. I think her Metroid DNA is gone completely. I think if that's the case, that was a hyper anticlimactic way to finish a really cool end sequence and like a really fun game. I don't disagree. They, I, I'm gonna like go stick the next to my game guns. And say, oh, Samus, you know, she had that Metroid thing happen for a couple games, but that's 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 long gone. The Metroids are gone. The X Parasite are gone. That's a bummer. I think I don't know necessarily what you do mechanically with having Metroid powers or even storyline wise. If there's even anything like it, 
it gets to the problem like we see with a lot of like shonen anime or like Dragon Ball Z in particular, where it's just a it's a power creep sort of thing. Yeah, where everything yeah. has to it's these right these you can't have these raising stakes infinitely. So I'm fine with Metroid stuff being done for, and the Metroid just being the nomenclature, you know, the the Chozo word for Ultimate Warrior. That's fine for Samus to be the Metroid in that aspect. But I think if that was what they were trying to show, I think they did a piss poor job of that. It was just like a a bow and the Brinstar Depths theme to like try and really make you put you in the feels. And then she's back to gravity suit and she blasts away. And we have like triumphant music after a planet is exploded. That is another thing. Like just tonally, I think it'd be a lot cooler if they, they ended that with like a more thoughtful sort of credits theme even like, yeah, there's more, there's better things they could do with that moment than just do like uh, the bad trumpet sound with the, (laughs) We, the, the trumpet sounds in this game were bad right they're like poor midi quality trumpets and that theme was like it was cool but not for the game that it was following i guess Might yeah i agree pick. the credits no the credits were whack and you're right I, I, like I, i'm gonna hold to you know my head cannon on that's what that ending was but i don't think that's the ending they wrote i i think they were just like oh quiet <sighs> robe Quiet Robe controls the x parasite in that moment and then saves samus and now she's free of it but yeah, it was, it was, it just happened so fast, then it was over. And I was like, I guess that's it. And then we just started. And they could have shown I, that I in, a, in a much better way. Like, I think that that as an idea is not flawed. It's just that the execution that they went with was poor. And like you said, with the, the moment of Quiet Robe's resurrection as QRX, and the first thing he does is he turns the Emmys back on that immediately puts you like, oh, fuck, he's done for. Am I going to have to fight him? Like, that could have been a fight that they maybe cut. Like this game also, you can look at it and say, there's definitely cut content here. It's still like mechanically and like mostly storyline wise paced out pretty well, but just, you can just look at the map screen and look at the top, right. And say, there was going to be more here. They probably wanted to do more. There's been interviews saying they wanted to do more, but they had to scope back to, you know, get it in on time and under, under the right budget and everything. And it doesn't feel like a, a empty game. It doesn't feel like it's, doesn't feel like it's too short or underscoped or anything like that but you can say there's there was probably something else here and they probably are doing payoffs for something that maybe didn't have as much setup so mm-hmm. that i understand but it still leaves me a little bit a little bit weaker on this game i think for me personally this is like an eight this is like a strong game this might be my favorite might be my favorite metroid game i'm not sure i think time will tell that story more than just like my immediate sort of reaction to it but it's just so much fun to play it's just such a good playing game and that cannot be understated like we're talking about the story a lot right now because that has a lot of that's like the feelings that we're getting from it right it's like this the story especially for you like being so invested in this storyline for so long me a little bit less so and then ramping up to this game i like totally took the full ramp and i think a lot of people did that too which makes it unfortunate the Switch doesn't have all the Metroid games on it. That'd be really awesome if they put Fusion and Zero Mission on there too at some point. But I wanted to talk to you for a minute because we mentioned it before and I see a lot of, I think the main thing that people talk about when they're talking down on this game, or maybe not down, but just like, oh, I wish this was better, is people are saying that, I'm not just like talking like, I am talking broadly here, but the things I see criticized the most are the difficulty and the music. And I want to talk to you about those two things specifically. First off, did you find this game to be difficult? Like, what was your uh, how how frustrated this make this game make you feel at points? 
I did find it to be a challenging game. Uh, and I think that David Jaffe and all of his ilk should just grow a fucking pair of balls and fucking deal with it. There's a difference between a game that is challenging and a game that is intentionally obtuse or too difficult. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought this up because I've been ready to like uncork this rant for like a week. I waited till I finished the game to watch what he had to say about that in that article that like went viral, like his post when he was live streaming or whatever. And I'm like, this from the guy, you couldn't shoot a fucking block on the ceiling. You couldn't fucking figure that out, David. Seriously? There's a fucking tutorial screen that says shoot blocks on the ceiling because there's going to be blocks that are fake and you can use this beam to shoot blocks and your missile can reveal hidden blocks. And this from the guy who made like some of the most notoriously difficult boss fights in modern gaming in the form of the Valkyries and God of War. And you're going to talk to me about everybody just want to make their game. He didn't? No, he made the first couple uh, God of Wars on PS2 and he did Twisted Metal. But he hasn't been part of uh, Sony for a long time. Interesting. I wonder the last who game I was he made for Sony then. was um, the Twisted Metal reboot on PS3, I believe, in like 2008 or 9. Oh, God. But yeah, he's more of just like, to- a, he, he does like some, some game dev stuff and mostly is just like talks on the internet. Personality okay. kind of guy now. Well, that's why I knew he was associated with God of War, but that's interesting that he, he, he didn't do the most recent one. Um, yeah, just want to clarify yeah, I that. Just, that's little, no, thank you for that. Yeah, I just think I just think it's a punk ass take, honestly. I really, truly do, and I, uh, I'm not a guy that particularly enjoys like overly challenge, overly hard games. Like I, I've never played a Souls game. I would like to, and I'm going to at your insistence. I'm gonna play them. I am, but I've avoided stuff like that because it does tend to make me frustrated. Every time I died in this game, I knew it was my fault. Every time I died in this game, I knew it was my fault. And that to me is a mark of a game that is well balanced and is hard, but is fair. And it is challenging. Enemies are going to hit you for a lot of damage, especially boss fights. It's almost like they want you to use the mechanics they've built into the game so you don't have to take that damage. How is that bad game design? How is that a flaw in the game that you are not paying attention to the cues? Like you said earlier, that sound, the sight of the counterattack with boss fights. You need to use the mechanics the game sets up for you. It's not optional. That's how video games work. So no, I didn't think it was too hard. And I think that I think that every time it felt like it was getting to a point that the difficulty was becoming very challenging, there's the next ability that's going to make it that much less challenging. Like when I got screw attack, holy shit is screw attack broken in this game. Like you can kill like broken anything in every in Metroid game. <laughs> and you get it not even as late as I expected, and it makes the traversal of just like regular areas so much easier, but then you'll run into stuff that, oh, you can't use it on this. You've got to be using your other equipment. No, I didn't think it was too hard. N- not at all did I think it was too hard. I thought I thought the fact that it was challenging was thrilling. And they also don't, it's not as punishing as older Metroids where you're going back to your last save station. In Emmy zones, yeah. you start back at the Emmy zone door. In boss rooms, or like major or sub bosses, mini bosses, encounters, you start back at the door. You don't even go all the way back to the last save station. So like, I don't get what people are complaining about. I really don't. I really, truly don't. I think, yeah. So wrapped up in with the difficulty, as you mentioned, I think there's like a couple different uh, sort of stumbling, not stumbling points. There's some walls that uh, present themselves and some of them are combat related and some of them are 
exploration related. Obviously, there's the David Jaffe ceiling. There is, uh, for me, actually, I had a, a, uh, a wall where the first time I went to Cataris, I got to a dead end and was like, I, I didn't know where to go. And it took me a little bit, actually, to realize that from the elevator room, you have to go left because I didn't really, it was so subtle. And most of the time when there is a um, hidden, hidden block sort of thing that you can shoot through, it's fairly obvious where like where to shoot and like what is breakable but that time it was it blended right the fuck in and i i don't want to be the person who's defending the game and saying that was my fault but it's not always it doesn't always have to have a crack on the wall for bomb bomb walls and like zelda you know it's it's really tough i think to to really walk that line between having it just be totally spelled out to you and having it be oh i feel like a smart person for figuring that out so that's like a stumbling point that I, I came across is I think that some of the walls maybe are a little bit too subtle in the way they're trying to tell you. And if you do look at the wall, you can see like glowing from the other side of it in like the background. Like it's it's pretty subtle, honestly. So I think it's like totally fair that I had I had trouble with that. As far as the combat, though, I think I was challenged. Um, I had uh, bosses that took me between five and ten tries. Never really more than that, honestly, though. There was, I think the tells were really good. Some of them just came down to like execution and uh, maybe some like, maybe not struggle, but like, it's funny because like thinking back on it, you think about the moment where you realize, oh, I have to shoot this big button to the left of this underwater guy and that lowers the water and that allows me to travel faster along the, the grapple thing and then I can go to the other side. And oh, what do I do over there? I don't know. Oh, I didn't realize there's a second button over there because I'm an idiot. I'm not looking at the screen. I'm just looking at this big thing in the middle. And yeah. I can understand like finding that to be like annoying, like not knowing, but like it's tough too because you realize pretty early on that if you look at the cut, if you watch the cutscene leading up to the boss fight, that tells you so much about the way you're supposed to be interacting with it because it shows you how Samus is interacting with it and you have to be Samus to fight that boss. So even like Corpius. It shows you what to do. It shows you how to hit him in the face with missiles and how to slide under him during that one scene where you get that counter off and that can let you dump missiles into his face and just like murk him so quickly. The same is shown if when you fight Kraid, you get a charge shot in the mouth that opens up his mouth and then you can dump missiles in there. Uh, the Dragaiga fight that I was talking about, the underwater fight, it shows you the button right behind. It shows the water going up and it shows, you know, the, the grapple thing at the top. It shows you everything you need to know. And the trouble is when, you know, we're playing these games, we fight, we do the first one, we die, we skip that scene every time after that. And that's a little bit unfortunate, but that's like half the players fall, half the game developer showing you that. I I don't know. I don't know who to put that blame there. It's just like, that's a, that's a casualty of the the format, I guess. Uh, The Emmys, I think not as far as difficulty, this isn't really related to difficulty, but you brought up the Emmys and I don't know if this game needs the emmys conceptually or uh pacing wise really it's just like another method to um get a power up and it is a thing to impede your your desire to explore because in a metroid game you're doing a lot of exploring and it's like that's that's really cool i really love exploring in metroid games i really love boss fights in these two metroid games well i really like the boss fights in this game some of the boss fights are very repetitive in Samus Returns by the nature of you just fighting a bunch of Metroids. But the boss fights in this game are awesome. Even like encounters with like little shit mobs having the the 
The melee counter makes those a lot more interesting than in prior Metroid games. But I see what they're doing. I know what they're doing with the, the ME zones where it's a it's an area where you want to explore, but you do not have the opportunity to because you're being pursued by this thing that can one shot you. But I don't know if that's necessarily my favorite part. of the, It's not my favorite part of the game, obviously. And those zones take up a lot of space on the map, actually. And it makes backtracking and traversal really annoying because the way that they they design these layouts of this world is very maze-like not in i need to go to the left and i'll eventually get to the left it's like oh i'll get to a dead end here and then i have to look at the map and like i have to like use my finger to like trace out where i have to go because these areas look like they should be connected but they're not they're just right next to each other and that's just part of the frustration you're like oh this fucking emmy's chasing after me and i don't have the necessary uh, abilities to like move around this area because i have to progress to the next area then backtrack to here and the emmys just end up being sort of annoying like i don't know yeah i at a certain point i switched from oh i can sneak around and explore and look for stuff to going i can just fly through this as fast as i possibly can and they do a good right. job That's what i, I would think do it, too. at building how they impede your progress through the emmy zones like when i got to some of the ones before i had the gravity suit where they had water in them i was like oh that's a game changer because now i can't just like flash shift through the whole emmy zone and be out of it i have to actually think really critically about okay what route am i taking through this but really it, it got me goal focused in a different way that instead of thinking about okay, how can I like explore this area and look for power-ups? Because that's what we're looking for ultimately is like, you know, where, where are my power-ups? Like, where, where's the stuff that's hidden here? <laughs> it's how can I get to that mother brain control core? How can I get to the control core as quickly as possible so that then I can go back and explore at my leisure? And then I had a much better time as soon as I stopped trying to like hang on this spider magnet section and stealth mode and then it'll go away from me and then i'll like stealth this way and then i'll turn stealth off and then i'll like go up here and then i'll get my stealth back of just like no i'm just gonna run because most of the time they're not gonna be able to catch you yeah um except for the speed booster one but they give you plenty of opportunities to uh go vertically and then it's not going as fast uh i, th- I guess my main problem with the emmy zones is there wasn't like a rising sort of tension and difficulty in them it started off engaging and interesting in the way that you avoid the the first couple Emmys. And then you get the flash shift and you're just blazing through the next couple. And then the last like one or two where there's water, it just it slows back down to being a total slog and then it's just annoying. And I'm glad that there's only like five like real Emmys, I guess. But I'm less glad that there are five because there's five and I liked all five of them, but that there wasn't more. <laughs> You know, it's it's the it easily could have been the same problem with uh, other uh, repeated encounters. Like, I think the uh, Chozo uh, robots had a really good uh, progression where that first fight was really difficult. And then as you got better and fought more of them, you had more difficult encounters, but you were more capable yourself. So you felt like you were getting better in it that was like a good progression of you feeling more confident in that fight. The same with the, the Chozo warriors as they got more powers and you got more phases and stuff like that. I thought that was a good progression too, but I didn't get that sense of progression against the Emmys and I didn't get that sense of progression at all from the central units. It was just a means to an end. Those were never fun fights. It was just like, Oh, this is a cool mother brain homage. And I appreciate that from that aspect. But beyond that, it was just a thing to do before you got the power up. So, uh, I, 
Well, I'll slightly disagree with you there because I think that I think that the challenge, the escalation of challenge in the Emmys was how do I use the geometry of the room in order to take this thing out? That it's not that, that was cool, the, but the the lead up to that was not it was not matched in the final encounter. I really liked the sort of puzzle elements, like how am I going to get enough room here? Where where am I going? Oh, I have to have the Emmy going along the ceiling, and that's how I do it. That was a cool thing to like realize and to and to execute on, but the traversal through the area to that point was not matched in that for me. Yeah, I agree. Other than when they, other than when they added water, um, and yeah. even that was just like one of the later zones. Um, yeah, yeah that was either that, that might be wave beam. I don't remember how much water there was in the the ice missile area. Power ups in this game, I think, are mostly good. I think it was weird how late you got cross bombs. And it was really weird how short of a time you have a double jump until you get just space jump and just you're just flying around the entire area. Oh, buddy, that was, was the cross maybe bomb. A, a, I think that might have been a victim of, like I was saying, with content. I think there could have been a longer stretch between double jump and, and space jump because that's a cool idea to not just immediately give you, you know, free reign to go wherever the hell you want. Space jump at this point is like a Metroid staple, but it's also so broken that it's hard to balance around. <laughs> Same with, sh- with yeah, uh, you can- uh, fucking... Same uh, with what? Uh, b- 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 turn into a cannonball and just break stuff. Screw attack. Yeah, screw attack. I always forget the name of screw attack for some reason. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I I, th- I think you're right. I think that um, the, the cross bomb, that made a lot of shit make sense. In fact, I think those were my exact words to you is I'm looking at some of these puzzles and going, okay, I know I can't do you yet. I'm pretty sure I just need the power bomb. And then getting the cross bomb and going, oh, I get it. I get it now. Like the one shine spark puzzle in. Uh, By the various suit up there. In I Arteria. think so. Uh, you have to run no, and you have to break those two little area, the two little bombs, then do a flash shift over the weighted plate, then go at an angle up to the top. Ooh, that one was tough. That one was tough. But no, I'm thinking of the one in uh uh what's what's the H the H named area? Hanubia. Hanubia. Yeah, that's with with all the Chozo iconography and and decor, right? Yeah, well, it's Well, Ferenia has that uh, as well, but Hanubia is like the area right before you go up to the final boss. Oh, then so I'm, a little I'm bit thinking of Ferenia more decrepit, then. more surface area. It's more rainy outside and stuff. Yeah, Ferenia. I'm thinking of the one in Ferenia. It's in the top left of that area. You've got a shine spark over. You've got to uh, jump up onto the platform. Oh, where you do the cross jump? bomb. You have to cross bomb, and then you have to cross bomb again, and then you. Yeah, you. No, no. Oh, I know no, what you're no, talking about. That's not actually the right way you do that either. I think I talked to you about that too. Where how uh, did you if do you it? Because have... I had to like. I came running in and fired at the beam blocks while I was running. Then preserved my shine spark, jumped up, morph ball, ball, morph ball, cross bomb over the destructible bricks, bomb, set the bomb to take out the blocks above me and immediately engage shine spark. So the bomb will will complete before the shine spark activates and like clear the space for you to fly up. How did you do that? So what you can do is you um, you get your, your shine spark, you get your speed booster momentum, you wall jump up there, you keep running and you slide. And you just slide through. And then that room at the at the left side, you crouch to preserve your speed boost. And then you roll over to the middle, lay a bomb, and go up that way. 
it's a little bit easier. How? You can slide for a long time with speed boost too. And then you can just keep morph ball with speed boost. You can destroy <laughs> you can destroy beam blocks, beam blocks. with a slide. With a yeah. slide with a stored yeah. shine spark. Yeah. What? Well, with speed boost. So before you store your shine spark, you can just slide while running and you'll slide for a long time and then you'll morph ball with the same speed and then you can crouch to store your shine spark they don't teach you a lot about the shine spark and the speed booster in general so you can so what you're saying is you started your approach (laughs) from the left not from the right i did it from the left because it was a little bit easier for me to to keep my thumb going that way and wall jump to the left it seemed a little bit easier for me that way i'd i'd I've seen other people get enough momentum from the right side, but I just did it from the left side because that was what I was doing, I guess. I didn't know you could wall jump with the speed booster activated and oh, yeah. preserve your momentum. Yeah. Holy shit. No, I, th- I, I did not know you could do that. I was, like, there's literally, I was like, there's literally only one way I could do this. I have to start from the right because otherwise I can't. Wow. I made that so much harder on myself, but I still fucking got that item. Like That makes me feel kind of good, actually. Yeah, yeah, there's you can do the you can do a lot of the shine spark puzzles the wrong way and still get them. And when you see the right way, you're like, man, that would have been a lot easier, huh? <laughs> I mean, but, I mean, yes, if it works, it works, right? Well, I was sitting there wondering what the fuck is this room on the left for? And at first, I thought it was uh, it was a red herring that it was like, oh, you shine spark uh, if you uh, yeah shine spark to the left, thinking, oh, that's where the item is, and then you find out, oh no, it's in the middle, and it's it's just a total. I thought it was a red herring. I never once thought it would be like a place to like boost and then to store get, and then like yeah. store it again. Well, that's wild. Yeah, the puzzles were great. Uh, I loved coming back to puzzles later. Uh, oh, I mean, that's half the fun of a Metroid game is like mentally bookmarking or using those map stamps that you can use now uh, to go. Okay, I know I can't do this yet, but I, I have a pretty good idea of how I'm going to do it later. Um, right, and then and then coming back and knocking them out. Who doesn't love a good map stamp? What I wish this game would do is I wish that once you picked up a collectible that it would just not be on the map or that you could toggle it off because I spent a lot of time hovering around looking for the one slightly more saturated, less uh, translucent uh, indicator to to tell me, oh, this is the energy tank that I didn't pick up yet. Not the four around it that I have, but are just slightly translucent. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. It was a big pain in the ass. Um, some of them, I was pleasantly surprised that with map icons and the like flashing squares that say there's an item hidden here, there were still a couple that I couldn't find that involved having to like uh, like a destructible block that I didn't find yet that would lead to like a completely different room. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, yeah, think I did that like that's... that there was uh, there was things that you didn't see because that's sort of a, a problem with older games where they would use that to their advantage to be like, OK, you can see that there's a thing up there, but you can't get to it yet. But in this game, there are there are occasions where you'll 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 break a block and then you'll be able to get past it and it'll it'll reveal a location that you couldn't see before. I like. Yeah, they had a pretty good use of that. It wasn't too much. It was it was just enough to be to keep it interesting. Yeah, and just, I love a game where I get to the end of the game, and even if I collected, you know, 100% of the items, which I did, to get to the end and go, that son of a bitch was still hiding things for me. Like the fact that you could preserve Shine Spark by wall jumping. No fucking clue. The fact that the, te- like you told me uh, uh, in, in, in chat, that 
the teleporters take you anywhere you want once you get to Hanubia. The fact that there's an orange teleportal, I didn't even fucking find that. There's a, there's like a sealed door in, in Gavoric where I was like, okay, I think there's probably a teleportal up there, but I don't know where the mm-hmm. other side is, and it doesn't have to do with item collection, so I'm just finishing this fucking game. Yeah, I love and you went that. to that room because I, in that same room is one of the, the upgrades. There's, there's a missile or energy tank. I think I told you in that one room in, it's probably Arteria because it's in the lava, but you have to have, have gravity suit and then you speed boost through a wall and then underneath the lava past a speed boost block is uh, an upgrade. But up like above, there's a breakable block. Uh, if you have grapple beam, you can grapple up there and shoot some walls to the left. And that's where the, the entrance of that orange teleporter is. And then you can go to Gavorin from there. Um, yeah, I didn't know about that till I read about it on the internet that you could teleport anywhere you want. That would have been really nice <clears throat> because that is one sort of downfall i think this game has is it's, it's really sort of uh difficult slash annoying to go from location to location and it's a bummer to me that the locations are all separated by load screens and you're not like walking from arteria to to, to Cataris. you know it's not like super metroid where you walk from brinstar and you go to lower brinstar and you walk through a tube that gives you Meridia sound and then you go into Norfair, you know, you're not, it's not, you know, organically connected in that way. And I think the, that would be so cool to have a 2d Metroid game that actually did that. That's like one of the things that I think about, because obviously I can't think about a Metroidvania game without also sort of holding it up to other games that I've played. And I think about obviously hollow Knight, which we you, yeah. you played recently. And I, I think about how amazing that game is in its, connectiveness and i think yes. super metroid really really leaned on that so heavily i haven't played the first metroid i don't know how much they they lean on that but super metroid Not i think is lauded primarily because of how connected that world is it's the problem with fusion you know it's it sucks that like it's cool because you have these really distinct environs but it's a bummer that those environments don't touch each other it's not a world it's just six levels in like a hub and that's sort of how this sort of felt yep. And even like Samus Returns, I could forgive it because that's the the nature of the game they were remaking. But since they brought that forward, I'm I'm hoping if they make another one that that's not just how they make these games. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're right. I think it's I think it's just a completely different design philosophy that they're like, well, we gave you like three different ways to move between all the different areas. Like, yeah, but still, it's like one to one and completely segmented. Even Metroid Fusion had a couple of places where you could just like bust straight from one sector to the other sector. But it was, like you said, it was really segmented. It was really segmented off. That's interesting, too, that, you know, there's been rumblings of, are they going to remake Metroid Fusion? And maybe that's just purely like fan speculation. But well, that'd be be kind of funny to me. They they pitched when they uh, initially... I don't know if this was like the first interaction between Mercury Street, Mercury Steam and uh, Sakamoto's team, but they pitched a fusion remake and they did that. It was decided for them by Sakamoto probably that, you know, I think if any game needs a remake at this point, it's Metroid 2, which was the right call. I think Metroid, the first one had already been remade in Zero Mission and that is like the most modern sensibility wise sort of version of a 2d metroid and then metroid 2 was the most archaic and the way it, it uh, controlled and it being stuck on the game boy meant that they really had to they had to do a lot with a little 
So I'm glad they remade Metroid 2. It's obviously it's still not my favorite Metroid game, but I think they they vastly improved the experience, and obviously they proved their worth in in uh making making good on those those promises. And I think Dread it makes me hopeful for the future of Metroid, and I think that is its greatest accomplishment because beforehand it was never like a guarantee that that it would even come back after Prime Three and Other M especially. And we had a lot of rough years. I mean, even like uh, <laughs> I think back to 2016 with Metroid Prime federation force and you're like oh no (laughs) yeah it's cool if hunters comes out because you know real metroid games are coming out it's cool to have spinoffs when you're also getting the the main dish but when it's only that and nothing else when did other m come out 2010 like oh that was a long time a long ass time bro that's that's sad and then the next year they were so burned by federation force that they didn't even show sam's returns at their e3 presentation they showed it on Treehouse after the fact because yep. like, we cannot show 3DS games at this thing, which is totally fair. But goddamn, that's rough, man. If they had just yep. waited a little bit longer, Sam's Returns probably would have been a Switch game. Yep, it's a victim of timing. Yeah, if even one year, if they'd have pitched that one year later, they'd have been like, great, make it for the Switch. Um, but maybe we wouldn't have got it until 2018, or maybe they wouldn't have devoted the resources to do it at all. I don't know. Um but you're right, the future's bright. Sakamoto's been talking openly since they announced Dread about what comes next. I have all these ideas and, and plans and things I want to do. And, you know, now they can, uh, they can take it any way they want. And I think there's a ton of positive momentum around the franchise for the first time in a long time. And the yeah, game is sort that of like w, universe- for sure. Yeah, it's sort of universally well-received um, overall by people. And the profile, I, I think, has never been higher. It's going to be the best-selling Metroid game. It's already the fastest, fastest-selling Metroid game in Japan and the UK. Um, so I, I don't see how it doesn't end up the, the best-selling ever, whatever that means, um, for this franchise. So here's, here's hoping. Yeah, man. Now we just need Prime 4. <sighs> Maybe we'll actually get to see that next year. It's been a little bit retro. They take, they take their time. They clearly were working on something after Donkey Kong Country, and that did not come to fruition, which is unfortunate, but really hopeful that Prime 4 uh, sort of, I don't know, I think Prime 4 is a much more Herculean task based on expectations. I don't see, (laughs) I don't see them uh, totally succeeding. I'm not going to, I'm not saying it's going to be a bad game, obviously, but I think it's impossible to follow up on one of the most uh, highly lauded franchises in history and actually just knock it out of the park after 14 years. When was uh, Prime 3 is 20, 2007. The first Prime game is, I think, the second or third highest Metacritic score of all time for a video game. I don't, I mean, that's, that's so much of that is time and place and like memories of that game have only like gotten better or stayed stronger. It's so big in people's minds. I just, you know, I played uh, a little bit of Prime back in the day. I played more Prime 2 back in the day. But after recently playing through the Prime trilogy and seeing those games for what they were were and what they are in, like, current context, I think they're good games. But I don't think they're fucking 97 on Metacritic good games. Like, that's absurd. Nobody has that universal praise of video games anymore. They're never going to be that way again. I think we just first got our first, like, over 90 open critic game this year in Forza Horizon 5 like the, there's no longer that sort of group think of saying this is game is the best game of all time kind of thing so 
we're not going to have that universal praise for Prime 4. And I think a lot of people think Prime is a better game in their memory than it actually maybe holds up to be. Um, I would be interested to see what you would think of a Prime trilogy if they ever get around to doing that on Switch. Uh, of you going back and like trying to look at it through fresh eyes uh, to see how you would how you would feel about those. <laughs> I I would love to revisit them with twin stick controls, and I think that's I guess the biggest question mark for me is how does how does a Metroid Prime game by Retro Studios work with actual first person shooter controls instead of uh glorified tank controls? Um, because that's what that's what I think aged the the worst for me. And it's been a long time since I played the GameCube version. Like I the the last couple times I've replayed has been the the trilogy on Wii. Uh, right. It's just a, it's just a lot easier to like move around with the nunchuck and and, and then just aim and shoot with the uh, uh, w- with the uh, I almost called it a Joy-Con with the Wii mode. Um, <laughs> right. Like that works better than the GameCube controls did. With oh, you have to lock on with L and R will let you strafe and uh, a it, is it, it was just a very button. yeah, it was just a really weirdly weirdly designed game because the GameCube controller was weirdly designed. Um, yeah. So I, I wonder how that will translate or if they'll like let it be Joy-Con point and shoot controls and kind of do more of the same. Uh, yeah, that would disappoint me. Uh, but I guess maybe not surprise me that much. Yeah, I don't know. I think as long as it's I think as long as it's a good game and as long as it, it tells the story I've been waiting for since Prime 3, you know, which is like. Why is Silex here? What does he want? Like what? That's the game that's that they said they wanted to make is that, that that's the story is 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 whatever this connection between the two of them is is yeah, is which is a hard intrigued. sell for me because I don't give a shit about that character who was introduced in Hunters, which I did not play. I played the demo on the DS like everybody else. But I do not care about this character. He does not hold a special place in my heart. So they cannot do what Sakamoto did and try to do a payoff on something that was introduced off screen. I'm sorry. I know if they do that, if they do that, that would be good for you, but it would not be good for a majority of people. <laughs> well, not on face. It wouldn't be good for me. It would need to be, it, it would, it would, it couldn't just be, here's all the information about why you should care. It would need to be a journey through an environment, arriving at a place of, oh, that's what's been going on this whole time. Like all the stuff that yeah. I just experienced now makes more sense instead of, you did this and that and the other thing and it you, you know you killed my father prepare to die or whatever i don't know like i don't have a clue what they have in their heads for that so unless they're gonna like really lay it in well and experience it through the course of the whole game instead of plot dumping us i think they should just like press reset on that and say mm, just kidding we're gonna do what we want or set it after dread which is something i've seen online really popularly or i've seen a lot lately is you know, they've sort of given themselves the opportunity to have Prime 4 be be after uh, Dread concludes, and then they can truly do their own thing. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, I, I do not think, I do not have any hopes or <laughs> delusions that that will be the case. I think it far more likely that they follow in the footsteps of Prime 3 and Federation Force because they sort of tease that in Federation Force also, despite that not being retro, that being, uh, oh God, what's the name of that studio they just bought? They make Luigi's Mansion. That is, I keep thinking good feel, but they make Yoshi games, next level games, the, their other US studio. So I guess they can just 
keep doing the whole, hey, this happened between one and two. Because the story doesn't really matter between one and two. It's just like, oh, she does some stuff and then she goes back to kill all the Metroids. And then some other stuff happens and she is a Metroid. But now she isn't Metroid. Okay, really quick. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about Dune. And I'm so grateful that they actually confirmed they they set aside the budget. They they called up Denny and they said, "Hey, you know what? We'll let you make another one." I guess because holy shit, was this part one of a movie? <laughs> uh, it was. I I think that I think it stands on its own merits, but it it felt it felt to me very much like the Fellowship of the Ring, where it is very clearly not the conclusion of the story it set out to tell. But nonetheless, had a lot of interesting things happen. We uh, saw some growth and development and change from these characters. And like they set the stage for like more is yet to come. Uh, I saw an IMAX. Uh, I drove four and a half hours to see this film in Atlanta on the closest true IMAX screen to me. Like there are some Limax near us that don't have like the correct screen size or projector definition or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I want to do the real fucking thing. And so we did. And on this drive, I'll have a quick side note, uh, we had not one, not two, but three blown out or flat tires. That's too many. Three? On the same vehicle. (laughs) And so we stop, we stop, uh, we're driving my buddy, my buddy's car. We stop ostensibly for me to pee and Aaron gets out and he's like, mom, my tire is flat. I'm like, like flat or like flat? And he's like, no, it is literally on the ground. It's flat. So he changes the tire. He puts the donut on. And we're thinking, okay, so we'll just like drive and, you know, you get your tire replaced. Aaron starts driving a little bit and we're like, okay, hang on. Donuts flat. Tire number two. We drive on the flat donut all the way to a tire shop at like 15 miles an hour. Get the tire changed. Front right tire. Great. New front right tire. Uh, Get back on the road to Atlanta. Cool. We're still going to have time to like maybe hit some malls, like do a little bit of shopping, do whatever we want. I wake up out of dead sleep to pulling over and i'm like well are we already there what the fuck's going on? he's like no i think the tire blew out i'm like you're fucking kidding me front left tire totally blown out and so we're stuck on the side of the <laughs> I hope road he for got like a new donut while he was at the tire shop <laughs> he he did not maybe he did when he got the second the the front left tire replaced Jesus. when the tow truck when the tow truck gets there he tries to start the car his battery is dead so he had to replace three tires and his battery on this drive what a to see comedy dude. Of Holy shit! But dude. so help me, Jesus Christ <laughs> of Nazareth, we saw this fucking movie in IMAX. Um, I, I, I think I, I'm too, just like Metroid, I'm too close to this to be like truly objective. But I think that for a book that many consider to be unadaptable, with material that is dense, full of jargon has so much that is based on like an inner monologue storytelling being blown up to like pages and pages of of descriptive text. He built this world and laid this exposition world building into this script about as well as I think you could possibly do. I think it's a masterpiece. I don't think it's like the greatest film I've ever seen, but I think as like a piece of filmmaking, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's gorgeous. It sounds amazing. It looks amazing. The performances to a person I think are stellar. Um, I have very, I have very little negative things to say about this movie. I like, I, I'm a very twitchy person. Like I shift in my seat a lot. You know, I, I like look around. I'm very distractible. I just started taking medicine for ADHD like four days ago. 
I sat through Dune and I don't think I moved like one time. It just completely and totally held my attention. And the people I was with, like Tiffany, my, my buddies from the MFA acting program, they don't know anything about Dune. They got the movie. They understood it. They followed it the whole time. So I think that just speaks to how well he built this world. This movie he's wanted to make since he was a teenager. And now he gets to finish the story where all the like really bonkers shit happens in the back half of the book. So I loved it. I, I, I absolutely loved it. And I, I am receptive to some of the things people have, have criticized. A lot of the stuff like the super fans have criticized, I think, is like angry white boy goggles that need to be taken off. But some of the more like critical things, like the pacing at a couple different points, I think, I, I think are valid. But what, what, what did you think? What was your experience? So I never saw the David Lynch Dune movie. I kind of still want to because I think it'd be a, a funny historical oddity kind of thing, you know, from that lens. <clears throat> I listened to the audiobook uh, a couple years ago. Um, I found it to be entertaining and interesting. I was not enamored with it as much as you clearly were based on your Instagram post about seeing it and, you know, being brought to tears and, you know, just having this like emotional sort of moment with Several it, which, you know, that's cool. I'm happy for you. Uh, the movie I thought was like a good adaptation of what i remember the book to be uh i do not remember there being too much bat shittery going on in the second half i just remember you know fears the mind killer knife fight become the the king of the the sand people and that pretty much being the most of it uh i don't even remember too much of like the harkonnens or like the the sardo car like that much stuff it didn't really stick with me i guess and then just from what i heard about the the novels following dune that being like where it gets really, really strange, where like, you know, evolution of a uh, race of people kind of strange and immortality and, you know, that kind of thing, kind of. But that's all, you know, just I'm speaking in vagaries because I have no idea what the fuck happens in the, the, other, the other books. But, you know, I thought it was cool. Um, I thought Paul didn't really have a lot going on for him. Um, I thought the 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 setup with his uh his mom and the the Bene Gesserit and like that stuff was well done and showing uh the Atreides household as being like you know pretty chill you know honorable people and showing not telling and the whole uh scene with the the uh the spice harvester in the middle of the desert I thought that was that was good um but primarily I think it's hard to adapt a novel obviously and adopting a series of novels with like you said it's a very uh kind of a lot of you know capital letters proper nouns going on in this this uh this movie and this books and the series in general can be really hard to do and i don't think it was really helped that this movie is impossible to listen to the music is mind-numbingly loud and then you can't hear what the characters are saying unless you have it turned up all the way i watched it at home i have hbo max and i you know obviously i can turn it up i have that that possibility because I live in a house, but like if you live in an apartment and try to watch this, you have to have subtitles on. And I don't like watching movies with subtitles on if it's in the language that I speak and, and understand because I like to look at the screen above where the subtitles are, where the characters are acting. You know, that's what I like to see in a movie. And I thought, yeah, the mix is just kind of bad. I don't think that it really, like, I don't think it accomplished as much as that he obviously wanted it to with like the soundtrack. And like, it's a good soundtrack. It's a cool, you know, Hans Zimmer, uh, a lot of bagpipes and like chanting that's cool that really that added to the to the vibe of this alien planet and like the 
it gave it a very foreign feel that it was going for. It was trying to make you feel like you were somewhere that you're not supposed to be and that and all that. But man, there's some scenes where there's like real important dialogue happening. You can't hear a goddamn thing because there's just noise happening at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I don't want to be like I that barely guy, heard but... the mom say fears the mind killer. And like that's such an important sort of that that poetry, that 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 phrase that she says, that the adage is so down low yeah. that it's not like it's not like oh you have to listen closely to hear it. it's like you have to turn it up all the way so you can hear it and that's not that's that didn't sit well with me is what i'm saying well well what i'm what i'm saying to you is it wasn't a problem in the theater and i think that like i don't want to be that guy but this is not a movie to watch at home it's just not and i i think that this day and date shit like I think it made sense a year ago, and I think it makes no fucking sense now. And I'm glad that it seems to be, like, rapidly going the way of the dodo, because, like, you know, Denise's right. Like, it's, it's like trying to drive a speedboat in your bathtub, and I'm thankful that it means that, like, people who can't get to a theater are able to see it nonetheless, but, like, had no problems with the mix whatsoever in the theater, like, at all. Like, zero, zero problems with the mix in the theater. Um, and I a hundred percent think this is HBO's fault for pushing day and date, because I think that I, I, I think that if they weren't having to like simultaneously prepare two formats for release, they probably would have been able to like figure some of this stuff out before it came to home release. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's how movies work. Potentially. Just, like, you don't get that really with home releases either. I mean, think about any Christopher Nolan movie and the mix is always bad in those too. So I don't know if that's necessarily a fault of the the format or anything, or if it's just like how they made the movie. And I don't know. I think it's a bit it's a bit ignorant to think that this movie would be successful if it, if it was only available in theaters. I wouldn't have seen it if it was only available in theaters. I didn't watch Blade Runner for it. I haven't seen any Denny Villeneuve money movie in theaters. I don't really care about seeing a sci-fi movie in theaters. I just want to like put something on TV and like watch it. Like I'm not a um, absent-minded viewer. I'm watching the movie. I'm doing my best. Meet me halfway, you know? If HBO No, I know that. I know, I know. And WB wants to like, you know, make this an important thing. Like they obviously they want it's tough too because this is definitely a part one of a two-part story that like Denny decided to do with no guarantee that there was going to be a part two. Like how sh- how fucking shitty would it be if there was no part two to this? Can you imagine? It just ends the ending is bad if there's no part two. That's all I'm saying. No, I agree. No, you're right. You're right. I, I, although I Fellowship think would have been an the, awful one movie. Are you kidding me? Oh my God. It would have. <laughs> yeah. Like Boromir's dead. I thought he was going to be like a dude. He turned out to be a total douchebag. What the fuck? Where's Frodo and end? Sam going? They're just in a boat. Okay. They're just paddling away. <laughs> Where's Gandalf? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think the box office numbers do bear out the fact that people were going to see this movie. Um, like, I, I mean, like, I think as of the end of last weekend or, or even like beginning of last weekend, it had already gone over $300 million worldwide. Like people were going to see this movie. Um, yeah. And it broadened it, you know, again, and I'm thankful, like I've got, I've got friends that are immunocomp. Like I have a friend, um, that I've taken, taken a couple of classes with who, who has lupus and she can't, like, she's immunocompromised. Like she literally is like, I, I'm not safe in a movie theater. Like I can't go to a movie theater. Yeah, it's so, not, like, she that, gets not to worth see it. Dune. Maybe a good movie, but not worth it. <laughs> Um, so I'm thankful for that, but also I just think that like, I see so many of these like 
students, like undergraduate students in the program, they're like, oh yeah, we all got together and we uh, we all uh, we all watched Dune last week. I was like, oh great, where'd you go? And they're like, oh, we went to Ethan's place. I'm just like, you guys are fucking actors. What's your excuse? Like, you should be seeing shit in the theaters. Like, it's your fucking job. Like, yes, Andre, I'm putting you directly on blast. Ethan, I'm putting Fuck you directly you, on blast. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, yeah, I I fucking loved it. I'm I'm thrilled that he gets to complete it. Yeah, the second part, you know, the the bat shittery. When you get into like God Emperor, the fourth book, like things get really fucking weird. But like the second half of Dune, you get um uh Jessica taking the water of life and Alia being born from birth with all of the shared knowledge of the Benny Gesserits and being this like abomination child. You get Paul taking the water of life and and seeing like all possible futures. Uh, you get the spice orgy. You get Gurney coming out of like uh, out of hiding, like working with these smugglers. Um, yeah, the introduction of like the Emperor and Fade Rautha and like the knife fight and all that stuff. You get them like summoning like the biggest like grandfather worms that they've ever seen and like smashing through the shield wall and like it's all the like really learning about worm writing. I thought it was interesting that they even like teased worm writing in the in the first movie. I think. If, like I said, like if there wasn't a second movie, that would be such a disappointing first movie. But yeah, I don't know. I think to your point about watching it at home versus watching in the theater, like after the theater runs over, does the do you want the movie to just like not exist anymore? I think it's completely ignorant to say we can't have these two things at the same time because you want it to be like a special IMAX thing. But I'm not going to watch a movie in IMAX no matter what. They make me sick. I don't want to go to that either. <laughs> so, I mean. You can have this like echelon of saying you should watch it with like good speakers, but I've got good speakers. I turned that shit, dude. It was loud when the bagpipes were a going. They were loud, but it was still like it's just I don't know. It wasn't a good mix. Call me, me. yeah. Call me a traditionalist, and it it may well be. And I haven't watched on HBO Max yet. I'm going to. I want to go again at least once in theaters before I before I watch it at home, but. I want to believe that if they didn't have to push both out at the same time, that that they would have had time to like produce a better mixed home version. And maybe like I, I just don't understand the process, but like I, I don't know. Call me a traditionalist. I th- I think that like the theatrical exclusive theatrical release window is there for a reason because these movies are not ultimately meant to be they're they are intended to be consumed on a cinematic screen. And the home experience can is valid and deserves to be there and should be honored. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't be there. It absolutely should be there. But they're being made to be seen in a movie theater. So I, I think that people should have the opportunity to do that first. As, as the filmmaker, as the artists intended them to be seen first. And then, like, absolutely, like, throw the gates open, home release, People who couldn't catch it in theaters deserve to see it, should be able to see it in a good format with a good mix. I totally agree with that. Um, and maybe it's just my own like stickler sense as as a as as a theater dude that has been dealing with like having to watch a lot of streamed theatrical performances lately that like something's something's not quite it's not quite the same, like going going from intended format to smaller format. So I just think they should have that first. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you're right that they may have been able to uh, do some more editing to make it more palatable for home theater setups. But it's just ignorant to think that they wouldn't be focusing on that eventually anyway. And I know the pandemic threw a lot of things 
through a loop, but this movie was delayed by like a whole year, right? Like they had a lot of time to work on this. And it's not like they were editing in the theater. They had probably headphones and stuff that they were working with in the first place. Like, I don't know. I, I think that's just a poor excuse. That's making excuses for a company that makes billions of dollars and a creator that has had all of his movies come to, you know, TVs eventually anyway, and has failed in the box office. So you can't just rely that you're going to be making it, you know, this big impact at, at the theater with a property that's a little bit obscure and has been treated poorly in the past. And I don't know. I, I'm not asking too much. I'm not saying, you know, totally, totally uh, give me all my wants and needs, but this could have been a little bit better. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> no. And, and again, I, I agree. I think that the some of this like fixation and yet, like you said, Chris Nolan does this shit too, where he's like, I don't want it to sound like it's inauthentic. You know, I want it to sound like, you know, a human speech. I'm like, okay, well, then you need to be okay with people like not hearing things in your movie sometimes and understanding that that's your fault. Like if you're going to do that, great. But like in Interstellar, like Michael Caine, his whole scene when he's on his deathbed, I, I've seen that movie like three times. I still don't have a fucking clue the words that come out of his mouth. And that's like major plot stuff. Like you said, with the, the litany against fears, like a key part of the like Dune mythology. That is mythology. the thing people know about Dune. <laughs> yes, like literally the thing people know about Dune. So no, I think I think your I think your concerns are valid. Um, I do think that with the the fact that like Warner Brothers optioned the entire book franchise, I think that them not greenlighting a part two right out of the gate was like bullshittery in the highest order because. Yeah, that's They've like already that's like holding it like, oh, if, don't you want to see Dune 2? You got to see Dune 1 if you want Dune 2. It was them holding it up well, as like a threat. <laughs> well, that, but also you've already invested in optioning the whole franchise. So like, why the fuck are you jerking us around? Like, just green like the fucking sequel. And yeah, I know you talked about like, you know, Denise films, like box office failures, but like, that's not the only measure of success in a film. Like the dude has made. No, like, I mean totally, but hit. that's like, that's the measure of success that they were threatening for Dune Two to even happen. So it's a it's yeah, a poor bet true. if that's the thing that you're saying. But like you said, if they optioned the whole series, you're like, yeah. What are you do? What are you trying to? What are you trying to communicate by by these threats? <laughs> it's a and weird thing. Yet they they want it to be financially successful. They want to see if they can greenlight a sequel. And yet. They do day and date with HBO Max, which undercuts their fucking take at the box office. So, like, what they were setting him up to fail a little bit, I thought, with with that. And it was still very, very, very successful at the box office, which is really great because we get Dune 2. Because otherwise, like you said, this would be extremely disappointing for so many <laughs> reasons if this was the only thing that we got. For, for me, it would be like the biggest blue ball I think I'd ever get in my life. To be yeah. like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, look at this world. Oh, look at these characters. Ah, you're never going to get any more. That's look at the it. It's over. Look at the worm. It's right there. And it's over. Never going to get it again. Um, yeah, I just, again, they, they, their, their varied conflicting interests, I think, uh, with this, the streaming and the day and date and wanting a sequel and all that stuff, it ended up working out really well. And I think it's also been like the most streamed thing or the second most streamed thing ever on hbo max already yeah so i wouldn't be surprised like i said very like, successful yeah the point the point i also want to make is that i don't know how much uh it being available on streaming actually cuts into the theater people going to see it in theater i think that if uh for a lot of people if they uh didn't want to go to the theater to see this movie i think those people can still be sold on seeing it at home 
And I don't know if those are the same demographic necessarily. I don't know what that Venn diagram is. So you're, I, and they're still making money saying, on HBO Max. Like they're still getting the money. I was gonna say, yeah. What you're what you're saying is that this this may have actually broadened the reach. If that people who were like, yeah, I'm not gonna see that in theaters would go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I heard a lot about this. Like, well, we'll turn it on. And they'll then especially they'll watch for it a home. more niche property is Dune. Like, I think Black Widow being available on streaming cut into the theater for that but that's also a smaller sort of niche of the marvel property as well for a character that's already dead in the mainline like series and is it's less consequential by by the merit of the character not mattering anymore really it's just like a oh hey check out their backstory it's just less important so but if that movie was only available in theaters that would have had a much bigger box office in the west and like i don't know how dune's doing um overseas but i'm assuming probably pretty well it's a big cg sort of fantasy epic and those do very well in china especially so i'm glad that he's getting uh, a shot at the part two i think uh then does really great work in sci-fi i loved blade runner 2049 um also didn't see it in theaters sorry uh that was before i had seen any of his movies and uh, maybe i would have if I, if I had been like more invested in him as a creator but after seeing sicario and being like oh that was okay and then arrival and being like oh that was pretty cool actually and then blade runner 2049 and the original Blade Runner, I hadn't seen that either. And then I watched them sort of sort of back-to-back-ish. I was like, oh, that was, that was really cool. So um, definitely, I, I was more interested in Dune because he was attached to it, but not enough that I would want to go to the theater during a pandemic still. Like, yes, yeah. I am vaccinated. Yes, I have both the shots. We'll look into the third one. But still, I don't want to be in a, in a room full of people for three yeah. hours probably i think it's that's like almost three hours <laughs> it's, it's a bit of an it's, ask it's still. actually it's like two and a half um but you're right it is and 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 i do respect that and i like risky assessments differ for everybody and like for the for the school of theater out here like when we're in rehearsal we have to get tested every week um and they have a, a company that's on site every thursday where students at uncg can can get tested for free and we have to go so like I, like I'm getting tested on the weekly. Everyone in my inner circle is getting tested on the weekly, um, and I'm vaccinated. And so like I, I've seen like l- literally I think I'm up to 19 films that I've seen since Black Widow came out in theaters. And like I could do that because I'm getting tested regularly because it's available to me, and that's something yeah. that not everybody has. And uh, I I'm fully aware of that. And I like I said I have I I do not begrudge anybody that is like i am not cool to be in a movie theater um yeah we got to take care of ourselves uh happy for part two happy for denis and mostly happy for myself having waited for forever and growing up with the david lynch dune uh and the sci-fi miniseries which is better um but is still kind of it's kind of soulless. It doesn't really like like it gets a lot of the stuff in the book, but it, it just doesn't have like very much of a beating heart underneath it is what I remember. Sort of arrhythmically beating to uh, keep the worms from coming up. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I feel like I may have uh, seen part of the sci-fi miniseries. I don't remember. Um, how likely do you think it is since you said that WB optioned the whole book series? How likely do you think it is that they do? like a TV show after the theatrical sort of movie versions, or I I know that Denis has said in like certain interviews that he wants to do um, a little bit of the second book to really like wrap up the the storyline of Paul. And I don't know how much he is prevalent in the the books after 
the first couple or like what's going on in the the whole shtick but how likely do you think it would be for a like a tv show spinoff like they're doing with 100 game of thrones shows apparently or a movie or whatever whatever they're gonna do with that um there's already a tv show in production or in pre-production about the Bene Gesserit uh and he is producing that and is directing the first episode so that's like happening um they've got showrunners attached uh yeah, he wants to do Dune Messiah, which I think would make sense. And it it is a fitting conclusion to the end of, like, Paul's saga specifically and sort of the weight of the guilt that he feels and has started to feel by the end of the first Dune film for I'm going to start a literal fucking jihad because it's still the best option that is available out of all the, like, potential futures that I can see. But also, I'm going to be responsible for the death of billions of billions of people like kill he's he's got a firm grip on that trolley handle huh (laughs) yeah and he's like it's that or everything gets even worse than that with absolutely no order or direction um and at the end of at the end of dune messiah he uh he walks into the desert is like literally like the the end of his arc in Dune Messiah. He just walks into the desert of Arrakis without a. So what suit. you're telling me is that Paul is just like Kang from the hit miniseries Loki. I'm gonna pretend that you didn't just say that to me. <laughs> I'm just making um, connections here, okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Then then you know you get more oddness like uh, Paul and 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 Chani's twins Leto the second and and Gadiba like Paul uh, Leto sets out to achieve the golden path, which is what Paul started with the jihad, where he starts like grafting sand trout onto his body, which are the like proto sandworms. And then he, yeah, he, he achieves basically in, in, in a state of immortality and, and several thousand years later, the fourth book takes place and he is the God Emperor who is like a human sandworm hybrid. Um, as one does. As one does. Uh, and then he gets dropped into some water and he falls apart. And I'm not joking. That's literally how that, how that wraps Just up. like signs. And then, <laughs> just like signs. Um, what a twist. <laughs> Yeah, what's a twist? Um, but there's so many other things that they could do too in the like greater universe. Like after Frank sure, Herbert do, like, died, some space travel ki- show or something. I don't know how much they delve into that in the books beyond the whole premise of the sand being used for interstellar navigation, that kind of thing. But yeah, yeah, the origins of all that stuff um were expanded upon. They did a trilogy that's about the war on thinking machines. But one of his, that's uh, Frank of- Herbert's son did some of that right yeah and this was from notes that he found of his father's there was this safe deposit box that they found after he died that had a bunch of floppy disks with like outlines for the last two dune books that he would have written and they wrote those and for this trilogy about the butlerian jihad which is when they they expelled the thinking machines um and that's actually quite good it explains the origins of the atreides and harkonnen feud uh, the beginnings of space travel and the Bene Gesserit order. Um, and yeah, and it's all, it's all very, and Arrakis is still like a backwater world at this point because they have thinking machines. Like they don't need to like push the human mind beyond, beyond its natural capabilities. Um, but there's no, there's no fold space travel either. So they basically just like set coordinates and do the jump and hope they don't die. So it's extremely risky to travel long distance anyway i go on i shouldn't because we've been talking for like almost three hours but 
Yep. Yes, there's a ton of shit they can do for TVs. For TVs. Okay. So many things. Really quick, if you get the chance and are looking for another uh, sci-fi series to read up on, you should check out. Um, it's like, there's four books in the series, but it's really like two sort of duologies. Uh, the first one is Hyperion. And it's, uh, I think the whole series is called the Hyperion Cantos, but I think you would really like Hyperion and the sequel to that. The second uh, pair are a little bit less good, but they really like pay off on like what's set up and there's like more like uh, world implications on the second two, but it's got a lot of that sort of, uh, some good shit going on there. Good premises, good characters, good story. You would really like it. Oh, that's tight. I will take that recommendation. Dan Simmons, Hyperion, for the listeners at home. And I think that will wrap it up for us. We spent way too much time talking about a lot of things. And it's been good shit. Hopefully EJ actually... What do you think the odds are that EJ is listening to this right now? <laughs> um, Not as we're recording, uh, but like right now in the in the, the waveform. Yeah, I fo- yeah, I followed you. Uh, at, at this point, I mean, I, I think that since his mug is on the art for this podcast and his name's I attached can, I can to it, like, I don't hope, worry about that. <laughs> I hope. Okay, good. Well, I hope he listens to the whole thing. Um, but also, I mean, you know, we very clearly spoiled like most of Metroid Dread and also like the whole back half of the Dune novel if he's never read it. So uh, I'd say the odds are uh, uh, pretty good. <laughs> I give it about like, yeah, like, like 65%, 70%. I'm higher. I'm like 85, 90 right there. The Ooh. boy needs, he, he loves listening to his boys talk. It's like he's there. He does. He's good <laughs> like that. He's good like that. We respect you, EJ. We love you so much. Uh, EJ, if oh, you yeah. want to be a part of the show, you can go ahead and email us uh, feedback at com. You know, other people that are listening, <clears throat> if you made it this far, oh boy, I'm sure you have a lot to think about and a lot to say. So please, uh, Give us your feedback and we'll we'll read it on the air and, and give us our hot takes right back at you. I've been your host, Nick Durheim. Again, this is our, our friend, Chris Gilly4. And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll hit you up on the next one.